Guy Ed Opperin for an in-depth discussion of conspiracy theories, strategy of New World Order resistance, high-profile court cases in the news, and interviews with expert guests and authors on these topics and more. It's the Opperman Report. And now, here is investigator Ed Opperman. Okay, welcome to the Opperman Report. I'm your host, private investigator Ed Opperman, and this show is brought to you by emailrevealer.com. Now, you can go to emailrevealer.com. You can get an autographed copy of my book, How to Become a Successful Private Investigator. Uh, otherwise, too, uh, we have all kinds of services on there, too. Locates, asset searches, uh, background reports, uh, uh, online infidelity investigation. Uh, but this time of year, right around the holidays, people like to reunite themselves with their, their long-lost loves, uh, long-lost relatives, and even uh, biological parents and children that have been separated through the adoption process. Uh, we can handle all these kind of investigations for you. Uh, but especially something like an adoption investigation, you want to give us some time. You don't want to contact us uh, uh, Christmas Eve. <laughs> you don't expect us to find your your long-lost child uh, overnight. So uh, uh, emailrevealer.com. Uh, also, too, I want to promote the member section. If you like the show, check out oppermanreport.com. Uh, we have a special member section where there's exclusive content, exclusive documents, and I'm running a special right now. If you contact me directly, at uh, oppermanreport at gmail.com. I'm running a huge discount, uh, 13 months for 60 bucks. Now, I've never gone this low before. This is the cheapest deal you could ever get in your life. And, and I'm doing that because, uh, you know, if you've been listening to the show and listening to my special announcements, we're having a really rough time over here. Uh, my car got towed. They found mold in my apartment here. They've been ripping out the walls for the whole past couple of weeks. You have no idea what I'm going through here. And then my car broke down. It's beyond repair. I got to get a new car. So if you can help me out, uh, uh, oppermanreport at gmail.com. I'll give you a special discount, 60 bucks for 13 months. It's the cheapest we've ever done it. Okay. You had a very special guest for us today, Bob Ruff. Uh, his podcast is called Truth and Justice, The West Memphis Three. And you can find that at audioboom.com. Uh, but also, too, his website is truthandjusticepod.com. And he covers a lot of true crime stuff. And right now he's doing a crowdsourcing investigation into the West Memphis 3 case. Uh, so, Bob, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Okay, great. Tell us about yourself. Who is Bob Ruff? Uh, Bob Ruff is a podcaster by accident. Um, I live in, in a very rural area in southwest Michigan and spent most of my adult life as a firefighter. Um, and I was 22 years old when I was hired full-time at the fire department, ended up all, all together, spent 16 years as a firefighter. The last three, I was the fire chief, uh, for the North Berrien fire department. Uh, and then as a hobby, I was into true crime. I was also an arson investigator. Uh, so I've you know, had a lot of training in investigations and in interrogation techniques and things like that. Um, and much like a lot of people, when the serial podcast came out, I was really kind of hooked on it. But as a person that likes to uh, solve puzzles, it, it wasn't making sense to me. And uh, I ended up one day when my four-year-old son, Parker, was homesick uh, and I was bored. I, I had the equipment. I have another podcast called Off Duty. Uh, There's nothing like this one. It's, um, it's, it's, it's a group of firemen just sitting around talking, um, kind of more of a comedy podcast. But anyway, I had the equipment and I got this idea. Well, maybe I'll go real quick, throw together a podcast. Uh, it was originally called the Serial Dynasty, and uh, I 
I, I started the show and the, the idea was let's basically start a discussion board, except for do it in an audio format on a podcast. So, you know, I went in and said, Hey, I'm, I'm studying the case. Uh, I'm digging deeper into it. I know a lot of you are too. Uh, every week, why don't you email me in what you figured out or what you think's going on? We'll talk about it on the show and we'll kind of walk through this thing together. And, you know, that led into eventually some some pretty groundbreaking uh, evidence that we pulled up in the, the serial case and the, you know, Nan Syed and the Heyman Lee murder. And it, it's the podcast just blew up. I mean, it was an accident. It was just something I was doing as a hobby. Uh, we ended up spiking, I think, all the way to number two in the iTunes charts. We actually passed Serial. Um, and then, you know, as, t- as time goes on, the listenership grew and grew and grew. And eventually, last year, I'm coming up now on um, my second year since I took an early retirement from the fire department. I was able to do that. I was vested in our pension and everything. I could I could walk away and started doing this work full time. And that happened because. You know, as, as I as I was finishing up my coverage of uh, the Heyman Lee murder case, uh, people started sending me in emails and calling me and mailing me packages, wanting me to help them. You know, people from from prison, family members saying, "Hey, you know, my my uncle was wrongfully convicted. Can you help him? No one's there to help them." And as I studied more and more into the area of of wrongful convictions, I realized that. This happens a lot more than any of us like to think. And there's so many people out there that just have no help. You know, we have the innocence projects that are out there that do great work. Uh, but the problem is, you know, they, they have only so many resources and it takes a lot of work to really break down um, a case. You know, once somebody is, is proven guilty in a court of law, the burden of proof shifts onto them. And it's, it's, it's been called a Herculean burden uh, to prove their innocence once they've been convicted. There's no more beyond a reasonable doubt, it's you have to prove with 100% of the preponderance of evidence that they're innocent in order to get a full exoneration. Um, so I just, I really felt felt led that this is what I was supposed to be doing. And I, I, I took on another case and, and that one was going as well uh, or better than the first case. And we made some leaps and bounds in that one. And then eventually decided, you know, as a, as the fire chief, I was no longer, you know, the things that I loved about the fire department were, quickly fading away, you know, the being on a daily basis, interacting with people and helping them uh, turned into, you know, I wore a suit to work and argued with politicians all the time and just decided it was time to kind of restart life at that point and, and left and started doing this work full time. We've had a lot of great success since, since our inception. And I think, I think this week, actually we're releasing our 200th episode. We've had around 40 million downloads, uh, we've we've worked on several cases. Two of the cases that we've worked have had their convictions vacated. Uh, two of them right now are in um, the process of testing a bunch of DNA that we believe are, is going to exonerate them. We had one case that we got picked up by the Innocence Project of Texas. Another one uh, was grabbed by the Conviction Integrity Unit in Dallas. So uh, it's it's been it's been a wild ride. It's nowhere near where I plan to be uh, at this point in my life, but it's where I am, and I'm loving what I'm doing. How old are you? Because when you look at your picture, you look like a young guy. Uh, yeah, well, thanks. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I am a young guy. I'm 38 years old. Oh, yeah, you're a kid, man. Yeah. Yep. And, and um, uh, yeah, you got the voice for it. That's for sure. <laughs> okay. And uh, and uh, very uh, well produced. Uh, you got the um, uh, the production values in the show. Very, very well done. I'm very impressed with the whole thing. Uh, uh, truthandjusticepod.com. Uh, now, you were saying in the, the serial case that you uh, came up with some in- exclusive information in the serial case. What was that? 
Uh, well, through the course of our investigation, we started, you know, and it's it, again, it started as almost like a fan show, just talking. Well, then, you know, we ran out of information that was available publicly. And so I started digging. Well, I had some questions about um, Heyman Lee's boyfriend, Don. Um, we actually, I was able to connect with, you know, the former FBI profiler, Jim Clementi, who helped me work on the case, and Jim Trainum, who's a uh, false confessions expert. Um, and with Don, I started studying some of the exhibits from trial, including his time cards. And there was, there was a discrepancy, you know, he was on the serial podcast. It was said that he had in an airtight rock solid alibi. He was at work. Well, as we dug a little deeper, we noticed that he had two different time cards for that week. He was originally uh, presented a time card that showed that he was off that day. And then later presented a second time card that said he was working that day. But what uh, most people hadn't noticed was the fact that the employee ID number, while the name was the same, the employee ID number was different on the two. Um, started digging a little deeper, actually contacted Luxotica, who's the owner of Lens Crafters, where he worked, um, and inquired about the changing employee ID numbers because he was supposedly working at two different stores. And they confirmed that, no, the employee ID number travels to whatever location you're working at. So there were some serious issues with the time cards. And we started wondering, why is he? You know, it seems to be manufacturing an alibi. Well, then we, through the crowdsourcing, found other LensCrafters managers from that time who contacted me and said, you know, the, the weird thing is the only way to create that timesheet would be for the manager to do that. Well, his mother was was the manager of ah. one of the stores, but but not from the store where the where the extra timesheet was created from. Um, and further investigation through a lot of the same type of work that you do at as a as a PI. Um, was able to find out, which nobody knew this, including, including the police, nor the prosecutors or defense, that the second manager at the second store, the one that created the timesheet that that alibied him for the murders, while didn't have the same last name to, as him and didn't appear to be related to him, was actually Don's mother's live-in girlfriend uh, or life partner, however you want to put it. Um, and she, was a, she had essentially been Don's uh, stepmother since he was 12 years old. So the mother worked at one store and the mother's girlfriend worked at another store. So that opened up a whole nother can of worms there. And then, you know, since then that information has been turned over to, um, Anand Syed's defense team, you know, his conviction has since been vacated or waiting on appeals, but you know, it, it was a, it was a pretty wild ride to go from a guy making a fan show in his basement to, you know, being invited out to Baltimore to meet with the defense team to go over all this information. No, that's great work. I tell you, I got a big smile on my face. I love hearing that kind of stuff, you know. <laughs> how'd you find the, uh, how'd you originally find the time card, though? Was it in the case file in Discovery? How'd you find it? Uh, it was actually, so another podcast called Undisclosed, who was covering the case, which really got me really deciding that I was going to go ahead and make my own show, was Undisclosed was, wasn't just taking the serial narrative uh, for granted. They were digging deep, and they were going through case files. Uh, Rabia Chowdhury, who was the the reason Serial exists, she was a, a lifelong friend of the Syed family, and she's the one that called Sarah Koenig and got her, convinced her to do the Serial podcast. Um, she had uh, all the case files, so they would put them out little bits at a time. Well, And then Susan Simpson, one of the lawyers that was on that podcast, had discussed them a little bit and blogged about the discrepancies, but never you know, never went any further with it. At that, you know, at that point, they weren't doing active investigations. They were analyzing documents. So um, I just took her work and took it a little bit further and decided to, well, you know, why not call lens crafters and, and find the answer to this instead of speculating? Oh, man, great work. Now, I, I, I'm not familiar. You know, I, I've heard the serial case and the, the serial podcast. 
Uh, but I'm not familiar with that case at all. And, and I wish I had the time to just, you know, list, you know, follow all this kind of stuff that people get so excited about. Uh, what other cases have you worked on uh, uh, with your, your podcast, the, the truth and justice pod.com? Well, from there we had, and that's why, and we'll get into eventually where I'm at now covering yeah. the West Memphis three case. But uh, up until this point, I had made a decision that I wasn't going to cover any well-known cases. What I wanted to do is help people that had no help, you know, fight for those with no one to help fight for them. So the, the, the season two case we took on uh, was a guy named Kenny, the blizzard snow. He was a professional boxer um, who his family had contacted me, said he was wrongfully imprisoned. It's a really complicated case. It's it's almost film noir style. I mean, there's, there's a lot of layers to the story. But ultimately, while working on his case, he tells me that part of a deal that he had made with the prosecutor in Smith County, Texas, was to falsely testify against a man named Edward Ates, uh, who was ultimately convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to 99 years in prison. Uh, and so Kenny Snow tells me, you know, keep working my case, but you should probably reach out to this Ed Aids guy because I don't know if he did it or not, but I know what I said wasn't true. Uh-huh. So I did that. I wrote, I just cold wrote a letter to Ed Aids, uh, which he tore up. And then I wrote him another one and he finally decided to write me back. And, you know, within a few weeks later, we took on his case and realized pretty quickly that this was clearly a case of wrongful conviction. And it's just an absolute tragedy what happened to this guy. And so our season two be- case became about Edward Aids, um, which was a murder of a woman who was found uh, dead with her nude with her throat slashed inside of her trailer. And Ed was the neighbor boy. Um, and that's a long, complicated one. But there were, that was that was that was really uh, an interesting case, uh, again, with a lot of layers um, in the midst of that. So both of these took place in Smith County, Texas, in researching wrongful convictions and Smith County, because at the time they were known to be one of the most corrupt DA's offices in the country. Uh, came across another wrongful conviction, a guy named Kerry Max Cook. Uh, Kerry Cook had actually gotten out on an Alfred plea uh, 20 years ago, but was tra- trying to fight for his actual innocence. Uh, another another case of obvious wrongful conviction. Started working on his case as well. So season two kind of became the Smith County cases. Uh, and during the course of the podcast, we actually uh, started working with the Innocence Project and Kerry Max Cook's case. Uh, and, and through that, uh, not necessarily through our work, but we were there covering it. Uh, he, he finally was able to make his case before a judge in Smith County who then vacated his conviction, uh, which is one, when we get into the, the West Memphis three case, you know, that's one of the people say, well, this case is dead. They, they, they took an Alfred plea. They already pled guilty. It's over with. Well, so would Kerry Max Cook, uh, a little bit of a different circumstance, but when new evidence was presented, his conviction was set aside. And then after that, um, we'd, we'd worked with, I had convinced the Innocence Project of Texas to take Edward Eight's case. Well, then they came to me and said, and this is about the time I decided to retire from the fire department and said, hey, we've got this case, a guy named Jesse Eldridge. We're certain he's innocent, but there's no way that we can prove it without a full-on investigation. And we don't have the resources to do that. Will you take his case? Uh, and so that was our season three cases out of Dallas County, Texas. Uh, Jesse Eldridge, uh, the murder of a woman named Kiao Gove. Uh, she was out for a walk and was stabbed 21 times and just left to die on the side of the road. No apparent motive. His own brother actually um, told the police that he witnessed him committing the crime three years after the fact, after several times saying he had nothing to do with it. Um, and so we've worked we worked that case for about a year. Uh, and ultimately, the, the Conviction Integrity Unit in Dallas County took his case. And right now, we we found lots of uh, exculpatory evidence. Uh, but we're looking for the smoking gun. And right now, uh, a lot of the evidence that they had said uh, is kind of an example of what we do. We really try to dig deep into details and analyze one little piece of the case at a time. That way we don't miss anything. Well, the 
the um, Innocence Project had asked for DNA testing. And they had been told by the prosecutor's office that the DNA in that case, all the evidence in that case was lost. It was gone. Uh, and uh, particularly the victim's clothing. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and in going through all of the notes, we found a note from a detective years later that it was a small little note that said he went to the medical examiner's office to view the clothing. And so we relayed that information to uh, the uh, Allison Clayton is the attorney that was working the case for the Innocence Project of Texas. Uh, she went to the, the prosecutor. They went to the Emmy's office and boom, there's the clothes. And they did find male DNA on the clothes that do not match uh, Jesse Eldridge. So we're hoping that will also result in exoneration. Um, and then in, the, in, in between there in the case we're working now, the Innocence Project of Texas asked us to do a quick kind of what we call a mini season on another case of there, there's a guy named George Powell out of Bell County, Texas, south part of Texas, uh, who it's a really interesting. We only did six episodes on it, but it's just it's it's stupid. The wrongful conviction here. This guy is six foot three, uh, convicted of robbing a 7-Eleven store uh, and, and sentenced to, to, to 28 years for it. And there's video surveillance of the robbery taking place and the the assailant that robbed the video store and there was there was five robberies actually five different stores he's only convicted of one the guy is clearly five foot six to five foot six. it's a little bitty short guy that robbed the stores you can you know you, you know those convenience stores you see the tape on the doors sure. when they walk out clearly five six to five eight george powell is six foot three i mean he's he's a full head and a half taller than this guy and the prosecution had some so-called photogrammetry expert go and convince the jury that, you know, they can't believe their own eyes and that, you know, the, the math says that's actually a six foot three guy. Um, that case is currently um, undergoing hearings in in Bell County. They're still in the middle of it right now trying to vacate his conviction, which I think that one's going to be a slam dunk. They've got a new and actual expert from the FBI, a guy named Grant Fredericks, who did an actual analysis in the proper manner of the photogrammetry work to get in a, an accurate height of the of the assailant. And he said that the guys, you know, five foot seven is, is how tall the guy was that did it. So, um, and then that leads us to where we're at now, which is, uh, a re a reinvestigation through crowdsourcing of the West Memphis three. Now, now the six foot three guy, I, I didn't catch his name, but is he still doing time now? How much time did he get? He got 28 years and yes, he's still doing time. He's been in for, I want to say nine years at this point. Um, and so he's still got a long, he's got about 19 years left to go. And so they're hoping to overturn that conviction. George and, Powell was his name. And that was a homicide. No, it was a robbery. Oh, he, wow. he was okay. convicted of robbing two yeah. carton, robbing two cartons of cigarettes and twelve dollars. Oh man, yeah, twenty eight years. I was going to make a bad joke, but I'm not going to now. When, <laughs> now, uh, when you take a case, how many shows do you devote to the case? Uh, in that particular one, we had because we had already had in the chamber the, the our season five case, which is the West Memphis three. So we had made an agreement with the Innocence Project that we would do, you know, I, I would do, you know, it's, you know, in this business, it's, it's an investigation, but it's also a production. So we said, we'll do a, a six episode arc on this case and cover all the elements. It was, that one was more about awareness to draw up support for George and um, some opposition to the prosecution. Uh, but typically we, we do as many episodes as it takes. So um, I think the serial case was 38 episodes. 39 maybe, and our season two case was 55 episodes. Um, and then the 
the season three case was in the fifties as well. And that's, that's one episode a week. So the, each one took about a year. Uh, the West Memphis three case, I have no idea. You know, we're just at the, at the beginning stages of it. We are right now. We are recording today, actually our six episodes. So we're six hours into it. Plus our on Fridays, we do a follow-up episode. So we're 12 episodes in almost. And we have yet to say the name of Jason Baldwin, Damien Eccles, or Jesse Miss Kelly. We haven't gotten there yet. Yeah, now that's interesting. Why did you start with stuff? Well, you know, I don't even want to get into that yet. Uh, <laughs> I'll make a little note. Okay. Why'd you start with Bojangles? I'm going to ask you. Bojangles. Uh, now, but the thing is, now, okay, now back to this snow case, the, the, the boxer. Uh, and you said how, uh, I know what you're talking about. The DA got him to, to testify falsely against somebody else. When you were a fire investigator, uh, arson investigator, uh, what kind of, did you see that kind of corruption behind the scenes? No, you know, I, I live in a small town in a small okay. area. And, and I think that I'm, you know, I've been pretty lucky to to work with some great cops and, um, and, and some other great firefighters. And, and you know, the, I think we, we get basically the same training as, as police officers, but it's got a different spin on it. You know, my instructor that, that taught me, you know, interview techniques and things like that. And, and courses I've taken on my own and, and things that uh, it's, it's very much was hammered into me you search for the truth. You don't, you don't have bias. You don't, uh, you don't go in there with an agenda and, and there's, and there's ba basically the exact opposite of what a lot of people do in a lot of cases that we've covered, which is, you know, let people talk when you're interviewing them, mm. listen to what they have to say, stop putting information in their head. So no, I, I've, I've never personally experienced corruption like this in my, in my own work. Okay. Now, and now you mentioned, okay, don't go into this with bias, but then now the first, uh, episode, the preview episode about the West Memphis Three, like right off the bat, you were saying that you feel that they're wrongly convicted. How did you come to that conclusion? Well, I said I don't go into it with bias, but what, what people don't realize, while we do our investigation real time, that's once we start really digging deep into it point by point. But I've been investigating this case for six months before that. You know, I've, I'd been, before we ever released the preview episode, I had been, I'd made three trips down to West Memphis. Uh, I've spoken with many witnesses. I've gone through thousands of pages of documents. Um, and so it, by the, by the time I started it, because it's, it's part of a screening process for me, if I had looked and seen these, these guys are obviously guilty, I would never have taken the case. Well, I mean, I, I may have, if I thought there was something we could do to prove it, because ultimately what we're doing is trying to find justice for what we're calling the forgotten three, which was uh, Christopher, Stevie, and Michael. Um, but you know, in my initial screening in the first six months of investigation, which you know, and a lot of people tell me they've, you know, they've, I've been investigating this case for years. I've been going over, and 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 that's true. And a lot of them, I'm certain, lots of them know a lot more than I do about it. But you also have to realize this is my full time job. I mean, when I say I've been investigating for six months, I'm talking seventy hours a week for, you know, five, six, seven days a week and, and multiple trips and, and witness interviews. It's not just I've spent years reading documents on the website. Yeah, but if you go back to the old uh, uh, Usenet days, uh, forget it. There were people on there 12 hours a day. You know? Oh, yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> and, I'm and sure. Getting involved in each other's lives. And, and you know, the, the, I, I tell you, you know, I hate this case, you know, and, and I've mm -hmm. been involved with it from the start. And it's the most hostile, uh, rude uh, bunch of people who are obsessed with this thing. Uh, uh, how are you dealing with that? Um, a series of warnings, deletings, and then blockings. Uh, <laughs> and, it, and it comes from both sides. <laughs> and to be honest, you know, I've listened to a couple of your shows just to kind of prep for this. And I, yeah. I know you've had some people on that had talked about, you know, the, the West Memphis Three supporters and how nasty they can be online. 
and I've seen some of that and I've blocked some people and deleted, but man, some of the, uh, the West Memphis three are guilty or just, are just downright nasty. You know, they, they swooped in, uh, as soon as we started opening up our Facebook page for discussion and things, once we started, uh, and there's two, there's our, there's our Facebook page. And then there's also a fan page that I don't run, uh, that actually has more, I think there's probably four or 5,000 people on that page. Um, but man, it's like somebody would, somebody would make a post saying, you know, Hey, I want to talk about the Bojangles guy. And then somebody comes in there call, call him a stupid ass redneck and yeah. posting 15 links to Damien Eccles psych record. You know, they have nothing to do, nothing to do with it. And it's been tough for me because with my audience, you know, I have, I have a real mixture. I, this is a, this is a new thing for me having a case that's so well known because I have, you know, a few hundred thousand people that don't know anything about the case and probably a few hundred thousand that know a little bit about the case or think they know a lot about it. And then a few that are, that are really experts in it. And so what it's, what's happening is it's discouraging the newcomers who are trying to do what we do, which is to break down evidence bit by bit, piece by piece, page by page, letter by letter. And they can't have a conversation because these jackasses come in and start, you know, completely off topic, getting way ahead of where we're at. So the best I've been able to do is I've warned people on the show and on the page. And for the most part, we haven't had to ban too many people. Most people have listened. You know, I've told them, say, look, you know, you're welcome to discuss this. I like to hear both sides. And uh, and, I, and I like the back and forth. But you need to be respectful and just start your own post. If you want to talk about Damien Eccles psych records, for example, start your own post. Don't don't snipe in on somebody who's trying to talk about something completely different. How did you get an interview with Eccles? Uh, it, it took a lot of work. You know, he, right when he got out of prison, he did a lot of interviews. And then I don't know if you noticed, but a few years ago, he just stopped. He completely doing, uh, completely stopped doing any kind of interviews. And, you know, I, I had, I had reached out to him and, um, and contacted his, his wife, Lori, and there was a lot of discussion and they were really hesitant to, uh, to do it. You know, I think they just want to keep a low profile and then, you know, over time, you know, I, I eventually said, you know, listen, all I want to do is go talk to Damien, get his story firsthand. And um, I'll let him talk about what, what he thinks should happen moving forward. And that's it. And they agreed to it. So we, you know, hopped on a plane, went to New York and, and sat down and interviewed Damien. So you contacted Damien and Lori directly. Yeah. So Damien, I, it was, it was a little, you know, I, I think I originally contacted him through Twitter and it, you know, and he was responsive, but it was, he basically said, I just, you know, you know, good luck. I appreciate what you're doing, but I don't really want to be involved. Uh, and then it got to be, and it, with Lori, I think it got to be as we were, I think with Lori was, I had, I had reached out, um, Jason Baldwin actually had put me in contact with Rachel Geyser, who was one of the PIs that had worked on their case, uh, years ago, uh, and had, and lives in, in, in Memphis and has a, t- and has a bunch of the case files. I talked to her and she said, listen, I, ca- I can't share this with you because it's actually owned by Damien because we work for him. So mm-hmm. he has to release the work product. Then I got in touch with Lori about that and and eventually was able to convince him to let me fly out and do an interview. And, and did you ever deal with his PR firm? No, not at all. I don't think he has one. That, that he hasn't had a PR firm in, in years. Okay. So he agreed to an interview with you and you sat down. How, how long was the interview? Uh, the actual interview we recorded was, I, I think it's about an hour. Uh, we haven't even edited it yet. Um, but we were there for, for, for two or three hours altogether before, you know, before and after, you know, we walked because we did it right there in his apartment. Um, and, and actually when we got there, it was just, it was just us and Lori for a little while. And, 
and we chatted just kind of a little bit about the case and stuff. And then Damien came out, we chatted for a few minutes. Um, you know, as always in a pre-interview, you know, we talk about, you know, this is kind of what we want to cover or whatever he was. It's, it's funny. Cause I've heard, I've heard so many people, even I think people that you've had on your show say how he tells people what questions they can yeah. ask. It's total bullshit. I asked Damien, uh, oh, I'm sorry. I don't yeah. know if I can swear on your show. No, we can't. <laughs> sorry no, about we that. can't. I was gonna... Hopefully somebody's yeah. got a 10 second delay. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> um, but it is, it's BS. You know, when, when I told him, you don't want to go over what I'm going to ask and, and his exact words to me were, let's, let's, let's just do this in one shot. Ask me whatever you want to ask me. And let's just, let's just knock it out. Never, never directed me what I can or cannot ask him. Nothing like that. And he just, he just was an open book and said, you know, I'll answer any question you have and let's do this. Uh, and then when we were done, we, you know, he, he, he told us about a show we should go watch while we were in New York and, and told us to go try some artichoke pizza, which we did. And it was good. Okay. So now, uh, why did you choose, uh, decide to uh, start off with stuff like the Bojangles? Uh, uh, well, if you're, if, you're, if you're paying attention when you listen, we're, we're going chronologically, and that's how I do every, in this case, is no different than any other one. We go chronologically through the case. We, we throw out, now we, we have, of course, you know, all the police records and trial testimony and all that stuff uh, for reference when we get there, but uh, if this is a wrongful conviction, and I say if because we haven't determined 100% if it is or not, uh, then then clearly the investigation went wrong somewhere. So what we always do is we go back to the very beginning. Uh, we study victimology, which is something that there was the, the police just did a terrible job of, which is the first step in any investigation is to establish victimology. Um, and, and then and then the media later even that, you know, put it out. You know, I noticed on a, on a couple of your shows and, it, and it's no no insult to you at all because I was the same way. It's one of the reasons I took this case. You know, you, you had to take a couple minutes to, to look up the name of one of the victims, Christopher Byers. And, and the reason for that is because no one has ever focused on the victims. It's always been about the West Memphis Three. Uh, and we it's, it's not. This case is about Christopher Byers, Stevie Branch and Michael Moore. And that's and that's our goal. So we go right to the beginning. We, we did an, an episode on victimology uh, and then we went from there to the search. And then from the search, we go on to discovery. And then the very first lead that comes in on the night that the boys were missing before the bodies were even found was Mr. Bojangles. Which, so that's why we went with Bojangles next, because that's what happened next. Yeah, one thing that always upsets me about the Bojangles uh, complaints um, is, like you said, I was because I was listening today, is uh, that the cop, the next call that the cop went on, out on was uh, uh, an egg-throwing incident. Right mm-hmm. now, no. Right. If, if I was looking for three little kids, and then I saw egg throwing incident, I would think, "Well, there's the kids. <laughs> you know, what I mean? let me go over right. there. That's where they are." You know, but uh, yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. I know, but people don't think that way. Uh, so, yeah. go ahead. No, I was just gonna say you're you're absolutely right, and that's actually one of the things um, in the episode we're recording today that'll drop on Sunday. Uh, we're talking about that a little bit, the egg throwing incident, as we're going through the door to door notes. That what a lead that was, as far as we know, was. Never Never followed up on. So actually, I'm filing an open record request right now for that report uh, because we did find the door-to-door notes that the owner of the house where the egg throwing incident came in said that they knew the kids that threw the eggs uh, and that they're around the neighborhood all the time. So I don't know that the police ever talked to those kids because in the notes they don't have any names there. But you know, these are kids. I, I don't know if you know where that address is at with the egg throwing. Have you ever looked on a map? But it's about a hundred yards away from the pipe at nine o'clock when the when the call came in for the egg throwing. So the kids that were throwing the eggs that were running around the neighborhood that day very well may have seen something. So we're, we're searching for them right now. 
Oh, those kids could have been Damien and uh, and uh, Jesse and uh, Baldwin. That could have been, although they said they were kids they knew from the neighborhood, and you know, Damien didn't live far from there, but but Baldwin and Miss Kelly certainly weren't from the neighborhood. Yeah, but Damien had previously lived right across the street. Yeah, but well, when Damien Damien lived in the Mayfair apartments was years ago. When I mean, it was I think he'd been out. It'd been ten years, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and you may know better than me since he'd lived in Mayfair. Okay. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I didn't know if it was ten years, but you know how it is. You see a kid, you know, you see him ten years later, the same. Uh, now, sure. W- what is it though that that came that made you think uh, that they weren't good for this crime, that they're wrongly convicted? Well, there's a lot of things that go involved in it. So if you throw out all that everybody you know knows or thinks they know about the case based on the documentaries and what happened at trial, I mean, people have to realize, you know, everybody always wants to cite trial transcripts. There is useful information in trial transcripts, but once once a case goes to trial, it's nothing more than a chess match. It's spin by definition. You know, the prosecutor's job is to try to create a picture for the jury that makes the person look guilty. And the defense job is to try to paint a picture that makes them look innocent. So it's, it's your, your factual information comes from police reports and handwritten statements and, and crime scene. So when we start investigating the crime scene, uh, it, itself and breaking it down. And, and this is, I know this is an area up for dispute, but uh, the, the crime scene has been analyzed by the father of criminal profiling, John Douglas, mm-hmm. the, the guy that, that, and, and, and before we get there from, from a previous episode, no, I, I don't believe that Damien Eccles used mind control on John Douglas. Uh, John Douglas investigates the crime scene and he sees, cause first I investigate the crime scene. Now I'm no expert. I've been working on, on, on uh, crime scene evaluation and profiling for a few years, and I've had some good teachers. Um, but to me, it looked like this is someone with a known personal relationship with these victims, probably an authority figure. Well, then I read through John Douglas's statement. He says, known personal relationship, and uh, and there's a lot of indicators in the crime scene to to show that, uh, and and probably an authority figure to the victims. Uh, and then and then so then I take it over to Jim Clemente, another FBI profiler, world renowned FBI profiler. And guess what his profile of the crime scene is? Somebody with a known personal relationship to the victims. Uh, all, both of them say no evidence of, from anything they've seen. And these, these guys have worked tens of thousands of homicide cases, uh, including uh, satanic cult killings. Nothing to do with it. So then we move on to Laura Richards, another world-renowned profiler that has worked with the FBI and is from New Scotland Yard. And guess what her analysis of the crime scene is? No satanic ki- killing. This is someone with a known personal relationship to the boys, an authority figure. Uh, and all three of them, by the way, also say this is this is this is not a teenager. This is some this is a mature adult or adults that, that committed this murder. So that's that's a pretty good indicator. Now, there's 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 lots of people that uh, I have other opinions, but it always amazes me to hear people say that, you know, well, I've been reading on Callahan for 10 years and I know more than John Douglas, Jim Clemente and Laura Richards about this. Uh, who this being the first murder these people have ever looked into. Um, but, but in any case, that's, that's still, it's not evidence, uh, by, but it, it's a, certainly a good indicator. Um, and then we look at, so what forensic evidence do we have on the scene that ties these boys to the, to the crime? Well, let, you know, let me stop are, you for a second about Douglas. Um, okay. Now, uh, there was something about mind control. Someone said that Damien had mind control over Douglas. What's that? I think it was, uh, was it, is it William, somebody you had on your, on your show? William I, Ramsey? I was listening. Yeah, and, and he was talking about Damien Eccles in and 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 I and I'm paraphrasing because I don't and I don't mean to misquote him. And I like the guy, by the way. He's not he, he was he was a good good episode to listen to, but uh he had said something along the lines of I used to respect John Douglas yeah. 
until he lost his mind on this case. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I don't know. And, and then he said, I don't know. Uh, Damien, he was talking about Damien Eccles and all of his mind control techniques he uses through his satanic rituals. And mm-hmm. maybe he used mind control on John Douglas. And it was just, for me, listen to it. It's like, you, you know, you, you, it's hard to have a valid argument if, if, if you can't be consistent across the field. You know, to say, I respect John Douglas, what he, what he said was, I respect John Douglas until he disagreed with me. Well, you, know? uh, you, you got to know William Ramsey's an attorney. Uh, he was involved in, in, in D.C. with the, uh, what was that case, the uh, uh, Vince Foster case and stuff like that. Very mm-hmm. credential guy. He's a very serious guy. Uh, you know, he seemed, and he, and he seemed yeah. like a real sharp guy. I don't, oh, mean yeah. to be, I don't mean to be hating on him at all. It's just that particular part of it, it was like, come on, you, you lost respect for a guy because the only thing you could cite was that he disagreed with Well, you. I got to tell you, I've lost respect for Douglas, too, uh, because of the way he treated Terry Hobbs, you know? Uh, and I, I don't know if you heard what Terry Hobbs had to say about his uh, involvement with Douglas. Um, and, you know, interesting, too, you know, there's another connection, too, between Clemente and Vince Foster. Are you aware of that? No. I would love to talk to Clemente about this. There's a, there's a page in the Vince Foster file by Clemente about child abductions uh, connected somehow to the Vince Foster case. Yeah, I'm not even familiar with that case, so yeah, okay. I, I couldn't tell you anything about it. Yeah, it's just fascinating. Uh, okay, and, and also, too, you know, there, there's a scene, too, there's a photograph of uh, uh, Douglas with Eccles, and there's tarot cards on the, on the table there. Uh, what do you make of that? I, I know you'd, you'd have to ask uh, Douglas, Douglas about it. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that was the discussion you guys were having about about mind control. So, I mean, if Damien is into tarot cards, I don't know where they were meeting. Maybe I, I have no idea what that was up. And I think okay. it'd be speculation for anybody to make any assumption there. Okay. And you said earlier that you felt led. What is your faith and your belief, personally? I'm a Christian. Okay. Yeah, I'm a Christian too, as well. And so is William Ramsey, by the way. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so then. Kind of, oh, no, well, I, I interrupted you. Uh, you were moving on after Douglas to, to talk about something else. Do you remember what that was? Okay. It, yeah. So, well, then, then we start looking at forensic evidence. Okay. okay. Well, is there, yeah, because with any wrongful conviction, you should be able to tell pretty quickly how it happened and, and, and should be able to point to an, an alternative theory that's at least plausible. Uh, and I don't necessarily want to get into the alternative theories, but so we look at the crime scene, we look for forensic evidence, uh, and there's nothing, literally zero, that points to, the three that did it now, now a lack of, of evidence, what, what do they say? An absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence. I agree with that. Um, but there is, there is forensic evidence on the scene that points to other people. Now, now not necessarily you know, in, in regards to it's been known as the Hobbs hair. I'm well aware that that may not be his hair, but what, right. whose hair we know it isn't is any of the West Memphis three. There's a fingerprint, one sole fingerprint found on the crime scene and doesn't belong to any one of the three. So, so we start having some questions and then, and then we get into, well, the biggest problem, I mean, the biggest problem with this case is Jesse Miskelly's multiple confessions. Uh, well, so let then, me stop you for a second, though, because weren't there fibers found that, that are consistent with the homes of the, the three con- confessed uh, killers? You know, There were fibers found yeah. that they couldn't rule out. From, uh, for example, one of them was, a, and this is an, an overly, and, and I'll, I'll point out, too, it's always the same people that say a hair the DNA matches within one, 1.5% of the population uh, that, that they can't rule out Terry Hobbs is ridiculous evidence means nothing, but a red, red fiber that is consistent with any red piece of clothing that you could buy at Walmart in the world is a match to Jason Baldwin's house because his mother had a red robe. I mean, so yeah, there, there was a red fiber that couldn't be ruled out that it could have come from Jason Baldwin's mother's robe. 
So I, I think I think if, if we're going to use that as forensic evidence, then we can't have the same position. No, no, but, I, but earlier you said there was none. Well, I, I don't consider that evidence. Okay. I, I mean, in any case, if I find a red fiber and all I can be told about the fiber is that it came from a red piece of clothing with this material and there's millions of those materials. Now, if if say if say one of the suspects was seen wearing a red shirt of that material and it can be matched to that shirt, that's evidence saying, well, if you go back to his house, his mother has a robe that's made out of the same material. And we can't even say it's a match to that, but we can say that it could be from that. I mean, give me a break. Okay. And, and what about the, um, uh, I know it didn't make it into court, but the blood on a necklace. Uh, and that's, an, that's another one, which is um, it, it's been stated that, uh, I think it was said on your show that it was uh, Christopher Byers, but I think it was actually Stevie Branch is, is the one that was related to. But that, again, uh, there was this necklace found uh, of Damien's that had some of Damien's blood on it. And they said a speck of blood that they could not get a DNA profile off of, but that could be consistent based on blood type with Stevie Branch. Okay. Could be. Which, again, you know, as we move on with this, if you, you got to hold the same standard of evidence against everyone you know so if you have if we're going to say that a drop of blood that could through blood type maybe be stevie branches then we don't get to follow that up by by saying the hair that the dna was uh, a match within 1.5 percent of terry hobbs means nothing no i i can appreciate that but but we also can't say that there's zero forensic evidence at the scene when there is blood and there is fiber uh it's, you know, it may not be 100% sure, but but it's there. Uh, now, what about the eyewitnesses who saw them walking down that road over there? Well, let's talk about those eyewitnesses. Yeah. So we're talking about Narlene Hollingsworth and her right. whole family, right? Right. What, what, what did they see? What did their statement say? Well, I, I haven't read it in about 10 years, but the thing is, they, they say they saw Damien. They knew Damien, right? And they, they saw yeah. right, and the flowered pants, I think it was, uh, or mud on the pants. Yeah, they saw mud on their clothes and walking down the road. They said they saw Damien Eccles and Dominique Tear, right. his, his girlfriend, walking down the road. And Dominique Tears, they saw them well enough to specifically describe Dominique Tears' pants as being black pants with white flowers on them. Right. Uh, and then the prosecution tried to make a case that she could have mistaken Dominique for Jason Baldwin, which Narlene Hollingsworth said, absolutely not. That's my niece. I know 100% that was Dominique Tear. So Damien walking in the area with Dominique Tear is more of an alibi than an implication unless you don't believe Jesse Miskelly's confession because Dominique had nothing to do with any of it. Well, you know, uh, well, but they did spot uh, Damien there with mud on his pants, right? She said that he had muddy, muddy pants. Yeah. Right. Okay. All right. And, and Dominique, uh, <laughs> listen, I'm no fan of Dominique Tear, okay, uh, and her background and all the stuff, her whole family and stuff is up to. My my, my whole family drinks blood, Dominique Tear, okay, you know what I mean? Uh, right. I, but, but see, some of those statements, you know, a lot of those statements, have you ever gone back to the source documents of where those statements came from? How many of them can be rooted actually back to Dominique Tear? Well, I think that one comes and straight from her mouth. how many of them are hearsay that came from someone else who said she said that, which she, by the way, denies? She denies it now. Uh, but her cousin, uh, uh, T.J. Tier, uh, you know about her background? T.J. Tier, the, I, the she's the one that supposedly uh, not supposedly uh, 
something to do with vampires <laughs> yeah. or something. The yeah. spokesperson for all vampirism in Transylvania. Sure. Okay. You know, had had a had a had a magazine about uh, uh, and also she's the one that sent over all that stuff that that material about uh, music to sacrifice children to. Uh, so there's mm-hmm. no doubt uh, that, that that blood drinking uh, existed in the Tier clan <laughs> through TJ Tier. Uh, she well, was sure, fascinated but, and obsessed with this. So, but for, a lot for, of this stuff becomes becomes rhetoric and distraction from the actual crime scene. So even if Dominique Tier drank blood, what does that have to do with the the crime? When the person that confesses that that we're supposedly believing right. says she was nowhere near it. No, okay, listen, but uh, but we both know that confessions, you know, uh, uh, defendants or, or or suspects who confess will not confess the hundred percent of the truth, and that they have self-serving statements in there. Uh, uh, especially a guy like uh, Miskelly. Who might be protective of of Dominique Tier and not want her to be involved in this case because he's that type of guy, you know. He seems to be the only one out of the three with any kind of conscience at all, right? Well, it, it depends on if you believe him. Uh, well, I, well and by the way, if you believe him, yeah, then you have to throw out half the the evidence from the crime scene. Well, like I said, you know, uh, he will he'll make self serving statements. You know, like, I, like the fact that he grabbed one of the kids. I think he said he beat Michael Moore over the head. Uh, you know, he, he's already been convicted. What is he trying to distance himself from? Well, he, that, he, he admitted and confessed to something that's going to send him to prison for the rest of his life. He couldn't get the death penalty because he was a minor. So what's he what's he trying to protect himself from? Well, I don't know. But why would he? Well, how about let's start with, with all his confessions. Uh, the Buddy Lucas confession before he ever even talked to the cops. Why would he make that? Well, that's that that um, particular confession is, and to be honest, I don't know a lot of. I haven't studied much of that one, other than the fact that it was a statement by Buddy Lucas claiming that after Buddy Lucas was a suspect. Um, but, but, but you know, I, I think if we're going to focus on his confessions, you need to focus on the ones that we actually know he said that are recorded, and there's a few of them. Well, no, wait. We we know the Buddy Lucas one exists because even Buddy Lucas had his shoes on his feet. Buddy Lucas having his shoes doesn't give you any proof of what uh, Jason, Jesse Miskelly actually said. Okay, so then uh, it it would be like a coincidence. And, and, I'm, and I'm not trying to argue. I'm just no, no, we, no. But listen, we're gonna we're ultimately we're gonna wind up disagreeing. <laughs> okay, you know, oh, but yeah, no I hard feelings. Yeah, I got no hard feelings. Uh, yeah. But so then, yeah, I'm, I'm just saying that there are. If, if we want to talk confession, yeah. Instead of instead of, you know, hearsay stuff, we can talk about the stuff that we actually know he said, because that's one thing that I do that if you've listened to my show at all, you notice is I don't believe anybody. You know, I believe in evidence and hard facts and things we prove. So, you know, we, we have recorded confessions from Jesse Miss Kelly. All right. So it, those are those are fact. Those are undisputed. Uh, the, the Buddy Lucas confession can be disputed. It's, it's hearsay. It, it wouldn't be allowed in court because it's hearsay. Well, no, 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 it would be allowed in court because the defendant's right there and he can testify against it. He could say, no, I didn't say that. Okay, yeah, you're, yeah, you're right yeah. there. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I'm freezing in this room right now. <laughs> you have no idea. I'm like shivering over here because uh, uh, my room is so cold. But the thing is, uh, okay, well, so let's get over all the confessions. Now, you don't like the Buddy Lucas confession because it's secondhand, because Buddy Lucas is coming in, uh, and, and you don't believe Buddy Lucas. Well, I'm not even saying that. I mean, I mean, okay. he's, he he has you know motivation to lie and everything. All, all I'm saying, and we can talk about it if you want to. Yeah. All I'm saying is we don't have any proof that it was actually said. 
when there are confessions that we do have proof of what he said. Okay, so Buddy Lucas, you're ruling out because uh, there's no... Not ruling it out. Not, you're not ruling, ruling it out. out. I'm just saying it's... it's any discussion we have on it has got to be premised with the fact that we don't know that Jesse Miscelli actually said it. Right. So it would be like any any witness testimony and any witness coming in, any kind of informant coming in and saying, this is what I know. This is what I found out. But it was said. We agree that Buddy Lucas made these accusations that Jesse Miscelli came to me the day before he was crying. He gave me these shoes. He said, I don't want to see those shoes anymore. All that stuff actually happened. Right. OK. And so. But you're not giving that enough. You don't you don't give that a lot of weight. No, because I mean, I mean, I'm sure you've studied yeah. Buddy Lucas and there's like I said, he had a lot of reasons to, to lie. He was being looked at um, as a suspect. Okay. And then and then all of a sudden he, he has a later than all of a sudden. Oh, by the way, Jesse Miskelly gave me these shoes and he was crying and, and, and right. this whole story. It may be true. It may not be. I, I have I have no idea. All but, I'm saying is I don't know. Right. If the confession actually happened. But even though Buddy was being questioned, you don't think Buddy Lucas did this, right? No. Okay. So then he would really have nothing to be worried about. Well, that's... To make up this... that's looked at as a murder <laughs> suspect, you'd think it'd have nothing to be worried about. Well, yeah, but if you, if you know you didn't do it, you're not going to start making up uh, lies about your cousin and, you know, you just happen to have his shoes on your feet. Sure. Okay, <laughs> okay so, I, I mean, instead yeah. of beating a dead horse here... Oh, right no, now, I'm so, sorry, I'm what, sorry. What do, you wanna, what do you want to talk about, Buddy Lucas? <laughs> no, no. And by the way, too, you got to remember, too, I haven't delved into this case in 10 years. You know, I haven't uh-huh. sat down and read documents in sort of 10 years ago, maybe even more than that, maybe 15 years ago. So a lot of this, I'm just going by memory. Okay. And I'm an old guy. I'm 55 years old, a lot older than you. It's like 30 degrees in my apartment here. Uh, now, what about the next confession? I guess the next confession in sequence is the one where he actually came in. He was trying to get the reward and he sat down and he gave a, a, a written confession, right? Right. And, and real quickly, while, while you said you want to talk about Buddy Lucas, I just yeah. pulled up a note from him. Uh, just just for reference sake, the first time Buddy Lucas was interviewed, he said, quote, Jesse gave me shoes to wear home about four months ago. This was in June 10th, by the way. And he yeah. says four months ago uh, because I got mine muddy, uh, me and Billy Moore and Jesse, when we were four wheeling. Just so you know, that's how that that confession started was four months ago. Jesse gave me shoes. And then later when he became a suspect. Now it happened on May 5th, and there was a confession. Okay, and do we know if it's the same shoes, different shoes? Maybe he gave him shoes all the time. No, it specifically says they're blue and white Adidas, which are the same ones mentioned in the confession. Okay, I'll, I'll have to go back and take a look at that. Now, now, what about the confession where he comes in to try and, and by the way, we're down to about five minutes uh, before the break. Uh, okay. And what about the, conf- I mean, it's going to take a long time to get into that confession. But what, what's your problem with that confession? With the recorded one of the police? Yeah, the one that supposedly took 12 hours. Well, to, to, to put it in a nutshell, it's, it's, well, it didn't take 12 hours. I know. Um, you know, they, but, they, but there was a large period that was not recorded prior to. Um, the biggest issue I have with it is his confession doesn't match the crime scene at all. And, and when, we're, when we're doing a statement analysis, and I've worked a lot with uh, Stan Birch, who's also with the, the FBI on, and, and with statement analysis, you're looking for a lie. When you're looking for a lie, you're looking for a utility in the lie. And, and you could say oh, he's trying to distance himself, but he's not in any of these lies. And the, the, the details that he's giving, everything from the time of day to uh, sexual assault that didn't happen to the bindings they used to tie them up. Uh, you know, you know, in that entire interview he's only asked five open ended questions. You realize that? I think there was like 93 questions where they were yes or no. So this happened, right? Yes. There was five questions that were open-ended and he got all five of them wrong. Uh, and that includes the way they were bound, 
the, the even so, mixing up which victim was which and um, the, the sexual assault that didn't take place. You know, so so that, that that's just a red flag is, you know, he's confessing to something that's going to cause him to go to prison for the rest of his life. Right. But he has the detail. He's not saying I wasn't there. He's saying, no, I was there and I did this and I chased my down Michael Moore and I grabbed him and brought him back. But I'm going to change the color of the, you know, they use brown rope, not black shoes. No mention of taking the shoestrings out of the shoes, you know, to tie them up. That didn't happen. Uh, talking about a knife and the knife he describes uh, doesn't match forensically, which, by the way, I don't think any the, the forensics are with the knife uh, scratches are a whole different thing. But um, ultimately, to put it short, there's some issues there in the fact that anytime he actually is asked an open ended question to give a detail, he gets it wrong. Um, and, and also one thing I have experience with for, for seven years while I was a fireman still on the rig before I was a chief, I worked as a substitute teacher for a school for emotionally impaired kids, uh, kids, you know, most of them ranging in IQs anywhere from 60 to, to 90 IQs with emotional impairments, a lot of them just like Jesse. And I just know from years of training and working with kids like that, that you can literally convince someone of, of Jesse's intelligence. I'm not saying they did this, but. Or whether and if they did, if it was even intentional, but you can you can get them to say or do literally anything. They have a an inherent uh, desire to please, especially authority figures. Because you don't think Jesse's very smart? Uh, no, I don't think he's very bright. Well, that's very interesting because now you just joined the the West Memphis Three Friends group on Facebook. Me? Yeah, didn't you? Because I just saw. Uh, I, 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 you know what? I assumed it's you because I saw a post in there saying, hey, I'm doing a crowdsource investigation. Does anybody want to get involved? That's not me. Really? Okay, I'd have to go back and look. Because uh, uh, yeah, it's the one where they're talking about raising money for Jesse because he just got arrested for the, de- uh, for the, uh, uh, the no insurance and stuff. That's not nope, you? Got nothing, to, okay. nothing to do with me. Okay, I apologize about that. Because I'm a member of that group. And uh, the woman who first, his neighbor and good friend, uh, Joanne Henderson, have you talked to her? No, but I've talked to Jesse. Okay. Um, well, she, uh, she's the one that told us he just got arrested. She was raising mm-hmm. money for him. And she lives right next door to him. And her kids go fishing with him almost every day. And when he mm-hmm. got out of jail, he went straight to her house. And what she just said to me was, he's not stupid. He's a very smart man. It could be. I mean, I don't know him that well. I right. met him once. I've, I've, I, I know that I think they actually gave him an IQ test. And uh, yeah, but he scored somewhere in the 80s, something like that. Taking a break. We're with Bob Ruff, <laughs> Truth and Justice, uh, pod.com. Uh, and we're talking about the West Memphis Three and the um, uh, yeah, Truth and Justice to West Memphis Three. Uh, we'll be back with more of Bob Ruff right after these messages. And now a word from our sponsors. Don't forget, this show is brought to you by PSCoco.com. Phoebe Saad is an independent curator with the Cocoa Exchange. The Cocoa Exchange is formerly known as Dove Chocolate Discoveries, and they make the finest silky smooth chocolate because the products start with the best cocoa beans, which are tested for quality and flavor by expert technicians. The Cocoa Exchange offers not just premium chocolates, but anything from sauces and spices to brownie and cake mixes and even coffee and martini mixes. If you wish to treat yourself or someone you love to a sweet and tasty gift, then the Cocoa Exchange is the brand for you. So you go to pscoco.com, you click on the Shop Now button, you can see all their beautiful chocolates, you can order it right now tonight, it could be in your mailbox in a couple of days, 
Or if you want to get into the chocolate business, you want to be a, a chocolatier just like Phoebe Saad, click the contact us button and you can learn how to get your own website, go into the cocoa chocolate business and sell chocolate and make a little bit of money there. You can have your ad played here at oppermanreport.com every Friday night, 5 p.m. and Saturday night, 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And on Friday nights, too, we do a live portion for one hour that I just do a live monologue. The ads are very, very inexpensive, and they're also played in the Opperman Report member section. In the member section, you can find all kinds of exclusive content that you won't find anywhere else. It's as cheap as $6 a month, $20 a quarter, or $75 for a year if you contact me directly at oppermanreport at gmail.com. I'll set you up with a little special deal there where you get a discount if you PayPal me directly and you even get a copy of my book. I want to thank Sean Duff from strawman.com. He runs the website. He runs the, uh, the, the, the member section. And I also want to thank William Ramsey, who helps us to produce the show and book guests. You can find Sean Duff at strawmanmusic.com. He's an excellent musician. You can find William Ramsey, who's an excellent author, at William Ramsey Investigates on YouTube. Archival Revival, the Christian Film Archive, is currently paying for vintage Christian films. They are dedicated to preserving and restoring classic Christian films and media. So if you have original prints, negatives, or other film elements of classic Christian films, or you have audio recording masters for classic Christian record albums, they want to buy them from you. So email archival.revival at gmail.com, and they're going to make you an offer. Archival Revival wants to preserve these classic Christian films so that they continue saving people for years. These films have brought people to salvation. They want to continue that. Their staff has decades of experience in handling and preserving of film elements, utilize the very best climate-controlled film storage facilities around the world. Contact them today at archival.revival at gmail.com. If there's someone you know has these prints, negatives, recording masters, or other materials from vintage Christian films, you can check out their blog at archivalrevival.blogspot.com. I want to welcome a newest sponsor, SubashTechnosis.com. Subash Technosis is a search engine optimization and website design company. They're located in India. So you know you're going to save a lot of money and get top quality service. They offer all sorts of business process outsourcing, data entry, banking BPO services, recruitment process outsourcing, software testing, offshoring research network, customer care, press release, content writing, and distribution, and much, much more. Now, you can get a hold of Subash Technosis by email at info at subashtechnosis.com. Their website is www.subashtechnosis.com, and their Skype is A-N-U-S-H-A-S-U-B-A-S-H. Remember, all these shows on Awake are brought to you by emailrevealer.com. You can go to emailrevealer.com and get a copy of my book, How to Become a Successful Private Investigator. But you also do all kinds of different services for you. An online dating service investigation. It's called an online infidelity investigation. And that's where you give us your husband or your boyfriend, your girlfriend's email address, and we trace it back to their online dating websites, and we return a list of all the dating sites that that email is registered to. We can expand on that investigation and trace it back to porn sites, escort service sites, swinger sites, gambling websites, and even prescription drug websites. If you think your ex-husband or something is addicted to prescription medication, or involved in an extreme online pornography addiction, we can produce a report for you that you can use in court. 
adoption investigations. If you want to locate your birth parents or your, or your birth child, you gave away for adoption, we can do, do adoption investigations for you. Asset searches for you. Locate bank accounts, hidden assets, hidden properties, hidden income, all different kinds of services in the asset search investigation. Email tracing. If you need to locate or identify somebody from just an email address, that's emailrevealer.com or you can contact me at oppermaninvestigations at gmail.com. It's the Opperman Report. Join digital forensic investigator and PI Ed Opperman for an in-depth discussion of conspiracy theories, strategy of New World Order resistance, high-profile court cases in the news, and interviews with expert guests and authors on these topics and more. It's the Opperman Report. And now, here is investigator Ed Opperman. Okay, welcome back to the Opperman Report. Okay, while we were gone, I made some hot tea. I turned up the heat. I got a, a shirt on. <laughs> okay, <laughs> my God. Now I'm going to start sweating this time, and I hope it didn't make it too hot. But, oh, my God, I have never been in a situation like that where I started shivering during an interview. It's not like I, ta- <laughs> I tape most of these. This is live. Okay, um, we're with Bob Roth, who's very patient putting up with me. Uh, his website <laughs> is truthandjusticepod.com. And his, uh, uh, you can find his um, uh, podcast on Audio Boom, and it's called again Truth and Justice: The West Memphis Three. Former arson investigator, got a background in uh, investigations, uh, doing very professional work. I appreciate it. I got a lot of respect for you. Okay, Bob, don't don't get me wrong. <laughs> okay, oh, now, I appreciate it. No, no, sure, sure. Come on. Now, I, now, and and I like the way uh, you know I, I listen to the Bojangles interview. I like the way you're doing it. Now. One question I have for you is this. Uh, with the, the, the three, they've, they've pointed the finger, like you said, at Hobbs. Uh, previously, they pointed the finger at Byers. Why would it be, if Miss Scully is the one who's making all these confessions, and we'll get back to the confessions methodically, but if Miss Scully is the one making all these confessions, why is it that never in all of these years, Jason and Damien would point the finger at Miss and say, well, maybe he did it. But uh, again, that's another question you'd have to ask them. Yeah. I don't know the answer to that. I mean, other than there's, you know, other than the, his confessions, there's no evidence that Jesse Miss Kelly was there. In, in fact, there was, I don't know, I think a dozen witnesses that testified at trial that he was actually with them that night. There was there was uh, also a police disturbance out at his trailer park that night, and several witnesses that says that Jesse Miss Kelly was there during that fight. Um, and and again, there's nothing. Even the the bits of, you know, if we're talking about the, the fiber you mentioned earlier, there's not even that with Jesse Miss Keller. There's nothing uh, indicating that he was there. Even the shoes uh, that Buddy Lucas, you mentioned, that gave the police, there was no evidence there on those shoes that they, they were attached to the crime in any way. Well, there is the Evan Williams uh, whiskey bottle, right? Well, yeah, when he, he says, what, a year later that he had thrown a, a, a whiskey bottle at a bridge and they found a bottle at that bridge and... What they say, there was no label on it, but they took it to a liquor store, right. and it looks like it's a, an Evan Williams bottle. I mean, that's still no evidence on the crime scene. That's evidence that corroborates something that he said. But the crime scene itself, which is, in my opinion, where, I mean, most of the stuff that gets discussed about this case from people that think that they're guilty, they can't point to any actual evidence. It's all this circumstantial, you know, the an Evan Williams bottle broken on an overpass a mile away from the crime scene 
is evidence that Jesse Miss Kelly was there. I mean, it, it, it corroborates uh, what he said, that part of it anyway. Okay. Maybe. I mean, we don't know when that bottle was there or or if it came from him. There were no fingerprints pulled off it or anything. But he, Okay, but he knew it was there. Yeah. I, okay. well, yeah. He did. And the alibi witnesses, you like those alibi witnesses? You believe those alibi witnesses? I don't, I don't know. I mean, again, it's, I don't believe anybody. Okay. You know, I, I know, I know that there was a lot of people that said they were with him that night. Right. Uh, and that's a whole lot of people. But the, the thing about an alibi witness isn't in, you know, in, in to discuss alibis for a minute, we recently had Michael Ware, the executive director of the innocence project of Texas on the show last month. And Michael said in 40 years of working in criminal defense, he's never one time ever seen an alibi work in court. They're, they're worthless. Meaning that because, you know, if you have an alibi, it's you were with someone that is obviously a family or a friend and juries don't believe families or friends, you know, of the uh, of the accused. OK, but uh, you're but, right. But when you agree, though, that if you have a credible alibi uh, that the cops will drop the investigation once they've confirmed that credible alibi. They should. Yeah, they absolutely should. But that doesn't always happen. And well, but that but that's why when you get to court and you got a crappy alibi, it never works. Well, I, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call Jesse Miss Kelly's crappy al- alibi crappy. I really? mean, he didn't come in there with one person saying, "Yeah, I knew where he was at." They had a dozen people come in and say they were there, and they were all wearing uh, ribbons in support of Jesse, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, but uh, again, so you can decide. You got to decide who you're going to believe and who you're not, and that's right. why again I go back to the evidence. Okay. So now, what about uh, Damien and uh, and uh, uh, Jason? They had no alibis. No, they didn't. They, and, mm. and that's also a common if, if you study and, and I'm not trying to to sway the discussion this way, but it's okay. just these are these are facts. Um, if you if, if you investigate wrongful convictions, you would be shocked. I don't know. Maybe you've done this before. How many innocent people? Oh, no. I have, you, no, oh, have yeah. no idea where they were at. Oh, yeah. you know, and when you, and when you get called on, when you get, get the fire put to you. The, the most common thing I see it all. I investigate these cases, and you know, we get hunt, literally hundreds of cases a month that I have to screen through to see if they're a case we're going to take. And I see it all the time. You know, they 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 start, and, they, and that's what gets a lot of people. Uh, Edward Ace, our season two case, they started calling his alibi into question. He he didn't quite remember, so he made something up. That's why that's why you really should you know have an attorney, and they'll tell you stop talking. Because all talking is going to do is make this worse for you, no matter what. Um, but no, they didn't. But, you know, Damien didn't remain. I, I think he gave some stories about he thought he was on the phone with somebody. Right. You know, remember, too, you're talking, you know, what were you doing last Wednesday at this particular time? Now, it's easy for us now. Everything's digital. It's online. There's social media, emails, text, phone calls to remember that stuff. But back then, I think I was making these calls. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. The people they talked to said no. They remember talking to him, but it was different times of the day. Um, but I mean, have you ever have you ever read into the Sanders girls, the the Sanders sisters? No, um, refresh my memory. There, there are a couple of people that wrote affidavits saying the night of the murder, they were with Damien. Damien didn't remember that, but mm-hmm. they, I don't, I don't even know that he's ever been questioned about it. But but they wrote statements saying that Damien was over at uh, one of the girls. Uh, house with their family and the other girl was across the street and both said that night they saw Damien over there that night at their house, nowhere near the crime scene. Okay. Now, now you were able to interview Jesse. How did you, were, were you able to arrange that? I did not interview Jesse. Jesse doesn't do interviews. Okay. I went to Jesse's house and met him 
and let him know, as I did when I first started looking into this case, you know, I, I kind of wanted to, to to feel people out and see, you know, has this been overdone? You know, because again, our, our mission has always been to help people that don't have any help. And, and in this case, who I'm talking about is Christopher, Michael, and Stevie, because nobody nobody's ever really cared what happened to, up to them. Um, but I wanted to, to check with the three and see, what do you think? Because you know, one thing I'm, I'm gauging is what we call post-defense behavior. So I go talk to him and, and I met him and he came out super duper friendly guy to me anyway. Um, told him, I was like, hey, you know, I know you don't do interviews. And he's like, no, no, I don't do any of that. And I said, but I, I wanted to let you know we're reopening the investigation. We're going to try to do the crowdsourcing. Um, you know, it's, it's probably going to stir some stuff up, but it's our intention to anything that's never been tested forensically. We're going to have it tested. We're going to search for new witnesses and see what we can find out. And he shook my head and said, and said thanks. I, I appreciate it and, and, and good luck. And then it was, you know, five minutes of him asking how Jesse and or, uh, Jason and Damien are doing. Because uh, I asked for his phone number and he said, I think his exact quote was, was, man, I don't mess around with a phone or nothing. He doesn't even have a phone. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but so that was, my, that was my interaction with Jesse. So he didn't confess, right? No, he did not <laughs> okay. confess in that instance. He didn't confess. Now, and when I, when I, meant, I said interview, I didn't mean a radio interview. I meant like, a, or a podcast interview. I meant like an investigation interview. And so you didn't get a really chance to answer him. But you, but you knocked on his door. Cold call? Just cold knock? Yep, just showed up at his house. Okay. All right. Uh... You know, one thing, you know, the original question you'd ask is why okay. I thought that they were innocent. Yeah. Another, besides, once we move on past the forensic evidence, it's another thing I look to is, is post-offense behavior. So how are these people acting after the conviction and even now, especially now? And so I, the first person that I was able to make contact with is Jason Baldwin. I tell Jason Baldwin, you know, we're going to put all our resources into this. We've had a lot of success in the past, uh, finding new information. We're going to try to solve this thing once and forever, once and for all. And, and, and I'm not a West Memphis three supporter, never have been. That's not my thing. Uh, I'm just all about trying to find the truth. And Jason was like, thank God, you know, somebody like he's, you know, once we got out, most people just let this thing go, go for it. Whatever you need, let me know. And, and one thing I noticed is he didn't try to direct us in any particular direction. He didn't throw a theory at me. He, he didn't, you know, try to uh, sway the investigation at all. He just said, yeah. And I, and I asked him what's been tested, what hasn't. And he said, man, Damien's defense team tested tons of stuff. I, you know, most of that the general public doesn't even know about. Uh, but, you know, I don't, I don't know what all there. You're going to have to get a hold of Damien for that. But if there's anything that hasn't been, if you guys have the funding to test it, test it. So then I go talk to Damien, same thing. You know, not direct. He, he's telling me, do it, please. Somebody solve this thing. Put an end to this nightmare for everybody. Damien's um, statement, a lot of his statements and Jason's were, you know, you know, they're glad that we're putting the focus on on the three victims and, you know, please investigate. You know, so that's a pretty open ended thing for a guilty person to say, yes, please test more. Um, and, and speaking of which, you know, Damien Eccles, the guy that um, obviously you believe is, is guilty. Mm. It seems like a pretty damn big risk for him to to file motions with court and have literally every single piece of possible DNA evidence tested. I mean, imagine if one, and he, at this point, he's still on death row. If one single shred of his DNA comes up on any of that testing, he's, he's going to die. He's going to be executed. So that's a hell of a risk to take unless you're pretty darn confident. None of your, I mean, did you know that they, that Damien had the fingernail scrapings tested? The Damien had the skin tag tested that was in the, in the, the, the binding stress. Uh, the, the Damien had the swabs tested from the bodies. 
were you aware that that he's the one that that ordered all that testing? Yeah, but that was you know months later, and you had to be pretty confident when you you, you ditched the, the bodies in, in water. Uh, but let me ask a question back to Baldwin. Now, how did you arrange the the meeting with Baldwin? You went down and saw him in person. No, actually, I'm going down to meet Jason um, on the 27th of this month. Uh, we just we've just spoke on the phone a couple of times, actually several times. Okay, so talk to him on the phone. We have and you, you have a plan to go down there and interview him in person. Right. Okay. And and one more thing I wanted to clarify with you. You know, I'm a defense investigator. I've always like 90 percent of all my cases with a defense. I'm very very mm-hmm. seldom, you know. So I'm, I'm yeah. I don't I don't like seeing people go to prison, even when I know right. they're guilty. And I've had guys death penalty guys, and I got their case cut down to like eight years. You know. Uh, mm-hmm. You know. Uh, <laughs> you know. And, and I, in the beginning, I thought these guys didn't do it either. In the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now uh, back to Miskelly though. Uh, what about the subsequent confessions in the police car with the Bible, all that stuff? Why would he do that? Um, your guess is as good, is as, good as mine. I, I don't know. I mean, the again, he's you know he's he's got some details wrong. Although by the time those those confessions came around, you know, he actually knew what the crime scene looked like yeah. by that point because he had sat through the trials. Um, so he got a little better. The only thing I can I can think of, even even if he's let's just say he's guilty, why do that, right? Because uh, because he has a conscience. Uh, see, he has a conscience, quite- so he he reiterates a confession that that he already gave. You, you know, I think a, a more likely motivation is that someone told told him that maybe you can get a better deal. Maybe we can help you if you give us more information. Yeah, but there was confessions with his lawyer right there. Obviously, his lawyer was telling him the exact opposite. Sure, but we don't know what the police officers were telling him in the car or, or, or anything else. And I'm not saying that happened. I'm just saying, because to be honest with you, I'm just as bad. Like, even if he's a guilty person, yeah, I'm still baffled by it. But I'm then, still baffled by it, the, the whole thing. If he's making all these confessions, why wouldn't you just take it at face value and say, well, here's the guy he's confessed? Well, because when we do a statement analysis, what we're taught to do as investigators, when we do a statement analysis from anybody who gives a statement or confesses, is look at where did the information they gave us come from? Did it come from me or did it come from them? And then also, does it fit the forensics of the crime scene? Are they getting the details right? It's all about the details. And when someone gives a long, detailed confession multiple times, as Jesse Miss Kelly has, but the details are all wrong, that that tells me that it's likely a false confession. I mean, I don't know if you're aware of this, but you know that that of the hundreds of people who've been exonerated through DNA evidence, absolutely did not do it. Exonerated. Do you know that 25 percent of them had confessed? 25 percent. So to say, you know, to, to to act like a false confession doesn't happen is just no, no, no. I'm not saying false confessions don't happen. I don't. I can't right. think of another case where there were ten. Uh, false confessions. Well, there weren't ten. There were there were there were supposedly six. I think. Well, we were just talking to somebody, Gary Meese, the other day, and we we had a list. It was like seven or eight on, on the list, just off the top of our heads, uh, mm-hmm. we came up with. You know, and, and there was something too. I don't know if you know about the whole situation with True Romance seventy nine on the West Memphis three. That you know, like was his pal, you know, the pen pals going back. She was donating a ton of money. Supposedly he confessed to her too as well. Uh, even later, when it was, when he was in jail, when he was in prison. Anyway, uh-huh. now, now what about okay so. Oh, the, the conf- so, uh, you, you want to dismiss the confessions with the Bible, the one with the lawyer there, all those you just want to dismiss them? I'm, I'm not, no, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm not dismissing anything. I mean, that's, that's one of the things that is, is required of a good investigator is to consider everything. But you can't focus in on one thing. You have to take the preponderance of all of the evidence. Mm-hmm. 
And, and, and so we have the confessions. Those are, you know, that's information that we need to know and we need to consider. We also need to consider the fact that false confessions do happen. We need to consider his IQ and the situation in the, the circumstances where he confessed and the fact that when you do a statement analysis that he got all the details wrong. So it, it, we haven't, I haven't dismissed it. It's there. It's being considered. But then, like I said, then you go to the forensics of the crime scene. And, and again, the, the, the post-defense behavior, like you said, it was just later. Yeah, what, whatever with Damien Eccles. That's, that's not to be, I mean, you want to dismiss the fact that he asked for, while he's awaiting execution, to test the DNA of every single scrap, every hair, everything found on the crime scene. That's, that's insane for a guilty person to do. You know, you know I, I've had cases where we've worked, where we've done DNA testing, and we've gone through all the evidence. Like, we want to test this. Oh, we don't want to test that because his DNA might be on that. You sure. know, he, he used that tool at that point, so we don't want to take a risk there. You know, for them to say test it all, you know, as, as compared to, you know, I've, I've made contact with, uh, with, with Terry Hobbs, you know, the Fred Walsh that you've had on the, on the show, yeah. uh, which by the way, Fred and I disagree about a lot of things. Love Fred to death. Fred's on our fan page and some other places. And we've had, a, Fred is very good at having a civil back and forth discussion. Uh, but, but Fred is one of the guys, <coughs> excuse me. I completely lost my train of thought when I started talking about Fred and how wonderful he is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but you know, we're, we're talking about, um, uh, oh, he talks a lot about Damien Eccles, how, you know, he's the one that, that claimed that he has a PR firm and they control yeah. what questions you can ask him and everything. And like I said, that's, that, that's not the case at all. It's just not true. And no, no, I've dealt with other point. authors. I, I've dealt with authors who told me the same story. Yeah, that's, I say it may have been true at one time, but that's, yeah. that has not been my experience, but he, he, so then let's look at, and, and by the way, I want to point out, I'm not saying Terry Hobbs is a suspect, but, he, but it's a point of discussion that, that it's been a lot, happened a lot here. You know, I've asked Terry Hobbs to have a conversation in an interview with me and absolutely refuses, won't speak to me, but he's more than happy to come on and talk to you. Why do you think that is? How well, many hard questions, you know, Fred, Fred talked, he gave me a real hard time without even hearing the interview telling me that. You know, I can tell because you're sitting there with your shoes off in his apartment in a picture that was posted that you didn't ask him any hard questions. Like, well, how many hard questions got asked of Terry Hobbs? You guys called him in there, told him how innocent he was and how terrible it was to him and never asked him a hard question whatsoever. But why is Terry Hobbs not willing to talk to me? But he'll talk, he'll talk to you. And then when I did speak with Terry Hobbs, so in, in contrast, when we're talking post-defense behavior, I talked to Damian Eccles, Jesse Miss Kelly, Jason Baldwin. I tell them I'm reinvestigating this case. I'm starting from ground zero and we're, we're testing everything, looking for new witnesses. We're going to do everything we do to solve the case. Great. Thanks. Godspeed. Okay. I tell Terry Hobbs the same thing. Terry Hobbs tells me to, to I, I, I can't, can't quote him directly. I don't have it in front of me, but basically told me to leave it alone. The case was solved 24 years ago. Doesn't want me to look into it. Well, okay. But you don't think that the way Terry Hobbs has been treated, that he doesn't have a right to say that at this point, he's been cleared. He's got a, he's got a right to say whatever he wants. Yeah. He can, he can say whatever he wants. He's been cleared, but he's been cleared with more forensic evidence against him than there ever was against the three. And you That's, can't deny that. That's a fact. No, it's the same. It's just it's roughly besides the confessions. <laughs> I'm talking about I'm talking about actual direct evidence, right. physical evidence. Okay, but besides right, you're right. Besides the multiple confessions, by all three, by the way, but besides the failed polygraphs, right? Uh, besides all that, listen, right. I, I'm not gonna. Butcher Terry Hobbs on there. He's been through enough over the years. He lost his steps. I don't want to either. That's right. a, that's not my intention. My, my, my point is just drawing a a contrast uh, between between the two. The way the two right. are treated, you know, I've been told 
that you know, or that, that people are assuming that I'm going to go a certain way. I'm being fair to everyone, as opposed to you know the, the way that right. we're going to microscopically look at the evidence against the three. But but Terry Hobbs gets a pass. I no, mean, no, no, no. I, I can totally I, not blame Terry Hobbs the the way he's been lied about, stalked. Uh, uh, what this guy's been through, okay? I, I I totally don't blame him for not wanting to cooperate uh, with anybody else uh, busting his balls at this point. Now, but let me ask a couple of questions. Now, what about all the polygraphs? Uh, we would have to think that every single polygraph uh, given in this case was 100% opposite. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like every like everyone who failed the polygraph really passed, but everyone who passed the polygraph was really lying. That's what we would have well, to believe. Well, if, 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 we're, if we're talking about the reliability of polygraphs, let's, if we take everyone who was questioned about this case right. and failed a polygraph and said that that was, that was accurate, you tell me how many people murdered those three boys? Mm-hmm. How many people failed polygraphs when they were asked if they killed the boys? Wait, uh, people failed, it, not if they, if they killed the boys, but did they know what happened? No, if you if you read the the polygraphs of, um, for example, uh, Chris Morgan and uh, yeah, they, they failed because they said, "Do you know what happened?" And obviously, there was a lot of talking going on. It was a bunch of kids talking about a lot of stuff. Uh, I'm familiar with that. Uh, what about uh, Eccles' admissions? Uh, it's called the softball girls. What, what about? Uh, have you looked into that whole thing? Like, read all the police reports on that, and then uh, seen Eccles? Uh, statements about what he believes went on. Yeah, and and admittedly, I'm not I'm not real well versed because, like I said, we haven't gotten that far into the story. But right. I've I've seen that some girls at softball games have said they overheard him saying it. Um, interestingly, they can't tell you one word that he said before or after it, but they're certain that he said that. Um, and I, I think at some point, Damien even said, "Yeah, either he said he did, or he maybe he did say that um, after he'd been being questioned the whole by all the, by the police." Um, so I, I don't know if he said it or not. But, well, well, first he said uh, that uh, he never said it. They made it up because they want attention. Then years later, he said, yeah, I said it. It was a joke. But the thing is, if you go back and read all those police reports, this wasn't just three girls who over the whole everyone there at that softball game. They were chained. They were moving their seats away. And there was like 20 kids who were running to their parents. Tell them this was a whole scene. This wasn't a, a minor thing where they, these little girls overheard a story. There's a whole scene that went on there that night. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's a mm-hmm. lot more to those softball girls than, than what you see on uh, this documentary and what you saw in court where they only brought in three witnesses and asked them a few questions. If you go back and look at those police reports, there was a whole scene there that, that day. Yeah, I, I, I don't doubt it. And like I said, I can't speak real intelligently okay. about it because I haven't dug too deeply into it. Um, but let's, let's say worst case scenario uh, for, for Damien, he did say it. Right. Then, then his response to it is he's he's joking about it. The and he's he's what an eighteen year old kid that's already, by that point had already been questioned by the police for for quite a while about um about the murders. People are saying that they thought he murdered it, uh, murdered them, and he says he's joking. Maybe so. Maybe he said it. Maybe he didn't. Maybe it was a joke. Maybe he was serious. Maybe maybe it's an actual confession. I mean, that's it's gonna it's all up for interpretation. Oh, yeah, by the way, too, uh, back to uh, Miss Kelly, he made a confession uh, to a, a cellmate in prison, too. What do you make of that? It's, it's, it's going to be the same answer I had to the, um, to the, to the rest of them. It, 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 I don't believe anybody, and I'm not saying it didn't happen, but it, it, a cellmate says that he confessed. That's, you, know, there, you know, there's a lot of states, um, I know particularly Texas included, is one that 
is banning jailhouse confessions because they're so, they're so ripe for corruption for inmates looking for uh, a better deals by by giving confessions. But then again, with Jesse Kelly, he very well might have said it. Yeah, because in this instance, uh, the guy wasn't looking for a deal. He, he wrote a letter to the DA saying, "Make sure you you work hard on this case because this guy is an evil guy. You never you never want him out of prison." Mm-hmm. You it, know? Have you read that letter? Very well, may it happen. Yeah. Let me ask you a question, because you know, you're saying that, okay, you don't believe any of these multiple confessions or the failed polygraph. Again, you're okay. putting words on I'm sorry, I did not say that. Then, what are you saying? I, I'm simply saying that they have to be considered, but it also has to be considered that we have to look at the reliability of the source. And and what I what I have examined is the actual recorded, where I've heard Jesse in his own words give his confessions. and I've got And I've got some concerns about those because of the the incorrect details about the crime scene. So then if Chessie were to confess to you directly, you would still question it because it didn't match the crime scene? Absolutely. And we're trained and, okay. I, and I, I would assume, I mean, I don't know what, what training goes into be a private investigator, uh, but as, as a quasi law enforcement uh, official myself and being trained, you're, yeah, you're absolutely anytime that you, you finish an interview, especially if you get a confession, we do what's called a statement analysis. And we go back and again, like I said, where did the information, did I give them that information or did they give me that information? Are the details correct? You know, now if Jesse gave me uh, a confession and he had boom, 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 here's all the facts of the case, that'd be pretty damning. But, you know, little things like what's the utility uh, in, in saying that, that Damien was raping one of the boys when the, the medical examiners say that didn't happen? What's the utility there? Well, he's uh, not trying to distance himself there, right? Well, wait, 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 but did he did he say specifically that he was anally raping the boy or orally raping the boy? I, I believe his exact words were Damien started screwing him. Yeah. Could be, well, there's no evidence of, of either. Well, well, if it was uh, orally, there would be no evidence. And, and there are, uh, a bru- I think there's a bruises to the ears on one of the kids, right? Yeah, they were beat over the head with something. Yeah. What about Baldwin's uh, jailhouse uh, admissions? Again? It's going to be, the, again, it's going to be the same thing. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. Now, now with Baldwin, are you talking about the guy who later recanted and said the whole thing was a lie? Yeah. Well, there's your answer. Well, but and he recanted and said it was a lie if there was a big giant billboard in town with a dollar sign on it saying witnesses come forward. Did he get paid anything? Well, there was a sign with dollar signs on it. Well, that's not what I asked. <laughs> I don't know if he got paid. And also, so this guy goes on, on national television crying. Uh, how do you think it made him look to say that I just got up there and completely lied on the stand? And also, are you aware of the fact that the, was it a, a doctor that was working with him or a counselor that wrote a letter to the prosecutor and said, this guy is full of it. Don't believe a word he says. He's lying to try to, uh, I don't remember what his purpose was for it, that the prosecutors knew that before they put him on the stand. You were aware of that, right? Yeah, I'm aware of that. Yeah, and I think it was an LSD addict, took a lot of LSD or something, yeah. Yeah, and then later he says, I completely made up the whole thing. So, okay. I, I mean, I guess you can argue it, but that's, you, you're, you're going to pick and choose. I guess either one of us has to pick and choose which time we're believing him. Right. Well, I, but, but I mean, when you look at the, the, the cumulative effect of all these confessions, you know, you just got to. But, but now the thing is, too, now what about uh, uh, prior to the murders, prior to these murders even occurring? Uh, there's statements from Eccles saying that he was going to have a baby and sacrifice that baby. Now, I know you, you probably, you've talked about Exhibit 500, and oh, you yeah. probably know better than this. Um, so, because I heard it on one, I, and maybe with, with Mies, I think, or somebody you had on there, 
that um, shoot, what is his? Uh, uh, his Deanna Holcomb, his girlfriend. That's yeah. right. Um, let me ask you this: Where did that information come from? Well, I assume originally from uh, Damon's mouth. Well, so in the actual exhibit, when you read it, you see that Jerry Driver right. told the doctors that Damien had this pact. They asked Damien, and he said absolutely not, over and over again, denies satanic involvement, and that no, he would never do that, and he denies it. So then they asked Deanna Holcomb, and Deanna Holcomb then says, and this is after Damien's already been arrested, she says, apparently I found out that he wanted to sacrifice our child. Right. And the story has turned into they had a pact and they were going to do it, and Deanna Holcomb confirms it. Deanna Holt, the source of the information to Deanna Holcomb was again Jerry Driver. Jerry Driver told the told the doctors that Damien Eccles said that. Damien denies it. And then Jerry Driver told Deanna Holcomb that he said that. And she says that he told me they said that. Deanna Holcomb was never aware of that if it was said. So where did Jerry Driver get that information if it didn't come from Damien or Deanna? Have you interviewed Jerry Driver? I haven't, but I would love to. I want to. I want to talk to him about how every full moon he drove around trying to stop uh, uh, sacrifices. So, have you tried to interview him? No, I haven't gotten that far yet. Okay, and, but you, but you suspect that he would have a motivation to lie and, and put a kid in an institution for for no reason? Well, I don't know what his motivation was, but if you read the report and you read it objectively, look at the source of of most of what's in Damien Eccles file in exhibit 500 right. the source of almost all of it is jerry driver and, and some of it we add downright know he lied where you know where he said that you know when he was arrested when he was in the trailer with his girlfriend uh that that he threatened police and did all this and he tells the doctors that and so that's in his permanent record but when you read the actual police report none of that's true none of that happened it all came from jerry driver and the source of the most of the most damning information in exhibit 500 the source almost always is Jerry Driver with nothing behind it to substantiate it. And in many times, you have actual police reports that contradict exactly what he said. But with the and exception of, of Damien's parents who had him committed because they were afraid of him. Well, did you read what that, again, information from Jerry Driver, but then did you read the statement from Damien's dad? Yeah, yeah I've read those a long time ago. Sure, what, refresh me. Damien's dad says, no, that it wasn't true. He didn't have a knife. He had a spoon and he was threatening suicide. He didn't threaten us at all. Jerry Driver told the doctors that he had threatened to kill his dad. And so and later on when the dad is trying to get Damien, him out of it. At some right. point, though, Damien, at some point, I think, if I remember correctly, in that document, it's a long document. You know, that is hundreds of pages. Sure. Um, I, I think he had said that he had threatened his mother at one point. Um, but. Damien's dad says that what Jerry Driver told the police is not true. So after Damien's committed and they're trying to get him out, they, they he wasn't statement. committed either. I, well, I, well I, I shouldn't say that. It's, it's been said wildly that he was Admitted. detained in an institution when mm -hmm. it was actually a hospital, that he was there for two days voluntarily when he was in or not by his parents when he was in uh, Oregon. Okay. So all this stuff about Damien thinking, you know, he's hearing voices and stuff like that, you just... Uh, Overlook that, and that's fine. I don't overlook it. I, 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 all of it, all of it is, all of this is again. You have to take the, the preponderance of all of it. You can't take any little piece of it. So, right. I think, I think Damien was a disturbed kid. He was certainly suicidal. He was certainly depressed. 
He was he was into uh, the, the what amazes me is the constant claim that he was a Satanist when he, he's oh, I've never, ever met a Satanist that now that before the murders never met a Satanist that constantly denies being a Satanist, but says I'm into magic and, and Wicca and all this other stuff, all the, the stuff that's equally strange to people, but continually denies being a Satanist. But people say that he's Satanist. But let's say worst case scenario, worst, worst case scenario for Damien Eccles is uh, based on all this. Everything is, is true in that report. He's a liar and he's a Satanist. And whatever else you want to say has violent tendencies. Let's say all of that is true. Licking the blood off another guy. That tie into the crime scene. Okay, but he's licking the blood off another guy too. Uh, Well, the one he's uh, admitted. But now, let's say he's he's a vampire. Right? How does that make him guilty of this crime? Well, because people in that neighborhood were also mentally disturbed, sex offenders, uh, into satanic cult. I just went through the door-to-door notes. Do you know how many different tips there were of other people that were say they were into satanic cults in that neighborhood? Oh no, yeah, I, I believe it's a hotbed. Yeah, now, mm-hmm. uh, but now, why would he? And, and just more even recently, we just got a hold of his uh, all the books in his locker, uh, which is full of occult material and stuff. Why would he lie about his occult beliefs and his, his fascination with Crowley? Uh, Crowley, his his memorization of everything involved with Crowley, and and Crowley advocated the sacrifice of eight-year-old boys. Well, did Crowley say that, or is that, quote, veiled language? No, no, you, you can look it up. Have you looked it up? Uh, no, I, I've read a little bit about it, and, and what I find is that he's that a lot of the claims about him are are, are written in, in veiled language. I mean, you have to interpret what he said. I don't know. The ideal sacrifice would be an eight-year-old boy, is what he says. Okay. Now, so now, well, now I guess that's a pretty good reason to lie about it. <laughs> okay, right. Okay, so okay, yeah. To your question, obviously, <laughs> he's on the stand being tried for capital murder, and they're claiming it was an occult-related murder. Right. And, and then, yeah, I guess that'd be a pretty damn good reason to lie. And then even after he's in prison and he says, well, now I'm a Buddhist, I'm no mm-hmm. longer a Wiccan, and, but we find out later on uh, that he was a member of the, the Crowley group there in prison. Uh, and he donated so many books to this Crowley group there that they named a library after him. Uh, so his occult beliefs in black magic and, and all this stuff hasn't diminished over these past uh, 30 years. And in fact, it's increased if you see him today. Well, I think a lot of that depends on uh, your your view of what is religion by calling it an occult. And a lot of people even call what he does now as Satanism. I, obviously I told you I'm a Christian. I don't believe the same as he does, right. but I, I did have him give me a detailed explanation of his faith. And it's, I, I mean, in, in my, in my opinion, it, 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 people can believe whatever they want. It doesn't make them a murderer. It, it, it just does not. And, and, and but the, it the would bottom be- line is let, let's say Damien Eccles, we can prove that he was in a satanic cult. Right. What evidence is there on that crime scene that it was a satanic cult ritual killing? Where are the pentagrams? Where satanic cult ritual killings are, are made big displays of, and there's the whole purpose behind them. Where's the evidence that that happened? It's not necessary that there would have to be an altar and a pentagram and all that kind of stuff, but it, it may not prove. Okay, him being involved with his obsession with Crowley and his obsession with blood and the occult may not prove that he's a, a murderer, but it does prove one hundred percent that he's a liar. Right? Sure. Okay. I mean, I mean, if if that's if that's accurate, then yeah. Okay. I mean, I personally don't believe he's a Satanist. 
I don't at all. I don't well, think he believes well, that well, let's at not get, all. Let's, let's not get caught up in Satan and the occult, but, but he believes in, in a, a, a black magic that involves human sacrifice, child sacrifice, because he's, he's, you can't be more obsessed with Crowley uh, than, than he is. And, and like I said, just recently, we got a storage locker where he's got a Bible in there. The only data that's underlined in that Bible is stuff that's uh, regarding the devil and Satan and, and nothing else. That's his only interest. Where, who's, I, I'm unfamiliar, who's we? Who just got the storage locker? Uh, well, one of these, how did they get that? Oh, one of these storage guys <laughs> who buys these lockers. He stumbled on his locker. It's, I, got a, I got a video up. It's a great story. Uh, we found mm. this guy. He bought uh, Damon Eccles' uh, storage locker. And you can talk to him. We'll put you in touch with him. Because he's, the, well, in fact, he's got a thumb drive with all of uh, uh, 4,000 occult books signed by uh, uh, Anne Rice and uh, Bazaar. And, and even uh, uh, with the other one, uh, Marl Leverett gave him an advanced copy of her book, Devil's Knot, before she published it. Like all these supporters and stuff like that. Uh, mm-hmm. And also, too, get this. Uh, there's writing in there, in his own handwriting, where he says, I am the devil, not a devil, the devil. And then there's mm-hmm. writing in there, too, in his own handwriting, where he talks about he wants to take this woman and put her in bondage and give her an enema. Bondage. Well, what do we have there at the crime scene? We have bondage. Right? <laughs> right, man? Okay, so uh, when, why would he lie about his occult involvement? Uh, and, and when we have uh, uh, statements in front of the softball girls, yeah, I killed them. I got three more picked out. We got statements through Jerry Driver, okay, which was a law enforcement officer. Does he have any other complaints? Uh, was, he, was he kicked off the force? Was yeah, so he Jerry ever- Driver and Steve Jones, by the way, two of them. And have you ever studied Steve Jones? Well, yeah, sure, 20 years ago. Okay, and, and, and do you know why Steve Jones is no longer a law enforcement officer? Or no. why he stopped? No. Look, look into it when you're talking about no other complaints. I'm not going to get into it here, but uh, I think you'll be surprised at okay. what Steve Jones was up to. So... Uh, will you take into that consideration uh, Damon's fascination with bondage and also Laurie, too? We have photographs of her in bondage. Okay. Uh, would you take that into consideration in your evaluation? 100%. Okay. All right. Uh, so I, 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 I'm still, I still need someone to explain to me how that crime scene was indicative in any way, shape, or form of a ritual killing. In what satanic ritual do they hit somebody over the head and drown them. Oh, no, 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 you got to look that up. Uh, there, there is a lot of uh, stuff about uh, murders in water uh, that are uh, occultish. And, and let's not get hung up on Satan and stuff like that, because I'm not an expert well, on it. I'm not an expert on that stuff either, okay? But I, I have been kind of, yeah. But okay. I'll, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you this, you know, I know yeah. we, we've got maybe 20 minutes left here. Uh, oh, the, you're the right. conversations yeah. from people that believe they're guilty, they always want to focus on the occultism and all these different things, all this stuff that, but, but, what people who believe that the three are guilty never want to do is to evaluate the actual evidence. You know, when we want to say, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to bash Jerry Hobbs. Okay, that's fine. So we're so you're going to ignore the fact that he gave a statement alibying himself with one of his friends, David Jacoby, and then David Jacoby comes in and says that's all a lie. It didn't happen. You want to ignore the fact that that a, a hair. That that was within one point five percent. I appreciate it. I'd appreciate DNA. it if you didn't, you know, point at me and say I want to ignore this and I want to ignore that. I really don't. I've looked at this over and over for years and years and years. I've gotten to know these people. I've gotten to know. I, I was originally a supporter, and I and I got in touch with Burke and uh, and all these people and said, Hey, I'll get you on the, I'll get you on our show. Uh, I I thought until I got to know these people, 
you know? Sure. Well, <laughs> you know what well, I mean? Answer, yeah. answer me this. We're, we're talking about background. Yeah. Um, uh, Terry Hobbs, does he, does he have a background of losing his temper and getting violent with people? Terry Hobbs has been cleared by the police. Uh, and Pam Hobbs has cleared Terry Hobbs. See, you don't want to answer the questions about any no, other no, no, stuff. No, you want to talk you're, about no, you're right. What do you want to talk? Let's let's focus on Pam Hicks. Uh, does she have a history with the police of, of eluding the police with her car? Well, you know, let's let's attack all these people and and I'm not, uh, I'm not attacking anybody. Pam, yeah? Pam Hicks has an alibi. She was at work. Okay. All right. Right. Yeah. All right. I mean, so, I mean, you you can't act like it's ridiculous to consider. No, no, no. It's been Harry considered. Suspect. It's been considered. He's been questioned. He's never confessed. He's been questioned. He's been cleared. He was questioned. Question was so. So we we can't discuss any of. No, we the can evidence. discuss it. We can discuss it. I, I mean, how do you explain? But why focus him, on him? Him saying, "Well, because I'm trying to find out who actually did this, and I'm still not seeing any forensic evidence, any of the direct evidence that indicates that the three that were convicted did it." Now, I'm not saying that's not a possibility. If I find new evidence that, that suggests that, I will. But there is evidence, and, and there's more stuff that we found that hasn't been released yet that I can't talk about yet. Okay. But I think you're going to be shocked. When I would you love find to out see. I love to see. We found. But let me ask you a question. You say that everyone who, who claims they're guilty wants to focus on the occult. That's not true. Uh, I'm the one who's bringing back up the occult. <laughs> me and me and William. Well, that's been that's just been my experience yeah. with people that want to. That's all recent. Yeah, if you go back years, when Sean Wheeler was the, the big opposition guy. Uh, mm -hmm. he, he went and he poo pooed all that stuff. Everyone did uh, until just recently. We've brought it back up. Have you ever sure. spoken to an occult expert uh, who can? Nope. No, I haven't. That is on our agenda, though. I, I haven't have... found a good one yet, but that's on our agenda. Would you like to talk to uh, uh, Dale Griffiths? Um, is Dale is Dale Griffiths the? Uh, is he the one that testified at trial? Yeah, the the mail order PhD guy. No, <laughs> see, well, you know what? You know he's a, a retired professor. And he was the police I'm not, captain. I'm not, I didn't mean to say that. I'm just I'm, <laughs> okay. I'm remembering and, in my mind who it is we're talking about. And he, oh, no, guy, right. Right. Listen, a lot of people have uh, uh, online degrees today, okay? And, and at the time, he did do distance well, learning. He's got other a degrees. There's between online degrees where you have to take classes. Okay. okay. No, 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 you know what? And, and where do you get your information about Dale Griffiths? Because I'm the last guy to ever interview him. I got two hours interview. I don't know. And I didn't yeah. mean to say that negatively. I'm just saying I read the transcripts. Right. And, 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 right. and he, was any... he was qualified as an expert in this case. Sure. That's right. the judge's discretion. Right. And, and he may be an expert in it. Of course I'm, he is. I'm not saying, I mean, I'm, I'm more than happy to talk to him. And okay. I didn't mean to say that negatively. I was just thinking, I was trying to figure out the name, who the name was. Yeah. That he was that that, that Doctor Doctor Dale I mean, Griffiths. Because you can be yeah. an expert without being. I, I'm not saying anybody has. You know, I've worked as an expert witness for years, right? And, and, you know, and I have an associate's degree in fire science, right? You know, so it's it's it, you don't have to be a PhD to be an expert. No, definitely not. You could be like a Native American and be an expert in folklore and all kind of stuff like that. Sure, and there's all sure, kinds absolutely. of and which is a lot of people don't realize. Uh, but but if you check him out, and I, I got his information, I can put you in touch with him. Uh, I'm the last person to ever interview him. You should just listen to the interviews. Because uh, he he clears all this stuff up about his education and all that and his background and stuff like that. Very qualified yeah. guy. If you uh, put me in touch with him, I would love to talk to him. Yeah. Have him on the show. I'd love to get that that side mm -hmm. of it. You know, without without you know being under cross examination, where where everybody's kind of directing where he's going. Yeah. And, um, and, but what? But so uh, no other occult expert you've talked to about uh, the facts of like this this overall uh, obsession with the occult and the. Even no, when, like I said, I haven't, I haven't yeah. gotten that far yet. I mean, uh, the, the only uh, experts I've talked to on that so far are, and I haven't spoken to all of them personally, but are the um, the FBI agents that that worked in that field 
and and worked those cases that all said that yeah. it had nothing to do with a, a cult killing was their opinion. Okay. Now, what about uh, on your? You've done six episodes on this, right? Uh, five so far. Six will come out this week. Okay. Well, what's the next one going to be about? Uh, I'm going to start watching the show now. You're going to get me addicted to your show. I'm going to start watching every <laughs> week now. So. Okay. All your friends. Yeah. And, uh, no, no, they won't listen. Uh, no, but it comes out once a week, right? Well, twice a week. We on on Sundays we drop our main episodes, uh, which is which is just me, and it's a you know it's a it's a monologue where I'm breaking down evidence and playing interview clips and doing interviews and things. And then uh, the listeners have three days to send in any questions, comments, ideas, uh, which my my producer Mike then organizes. And then Mike is kind of their voice, and we do a Friday follow up episode where Mike asks me questions from the listeners that drop on Friday mornings. Uh, and this week we're going to start breaking down. Uh, that is something that's not available on Callahan. One of my listeners uh, actually went to the evidence room and took photos of the 140 pages of door-to-door notes from the police. Mm. And so we're going to start breaking those down, uh, going over leads and sightings of the boys. Have you ever spoken to Sean Wheeler? Nope. Oh, yeah. Have you tried? No, not yet. Like I said, I'm only, we're, we're five weeks into this thing. Okay. We've got a long way to go. Yeah, now, it was, yeah now, how, how far in advance? Like, are you, you, like you're working on this and you, you'll report like that fresh? The stuff you worked on that week? We literally, our show, what's kind of set to aside from a lot is this is quite literally a real-time crowdsourced investigation, meaning what I'm doing this week, I report on this week. Now, again, there was, you know, months of a preliminary investigation to decide if we even wanted to take the case. Hmm. But then now we go back through and we're going detail by detail, piece by piece, bit by bit as we move through it. What about the three original uh, WestMemphis3.org folks? Have you been talking to them? No. Nope. Uh, no, a lot of and, and And I know I, I sound a little pissy maybe with those. Some no, of the not stuff, at all. The, I, I try really hard to, to avoid the rhetoric. You know, there, there's, there's, everybody's got their agenda and their talking points and, and the rhetoric. Whether the people that they say they're innocent, the people say they're guilty. And we're looking for evidence. That's what we're doing. We're looking for evidence. Is there something that was missed? Is there something new that's out there? Um, so, you know, get, getting involved with a lot of that stuff, just, it, it's, it, we'll get there eventually. You know, people want to talk, but right now we're really, really focused on the evidence. Okay. And what about uh, Brent Turvey? You talked to him? Nope. Okay. Nope, uh, what is your opinion of uh, the, all the debate about the bite marks? The, well, to be honest, I mean, I've read different opinions on it, and it's, it's widely. Um, you know, Warner Spitz is Dr. Warner Spitz is another person that I've heard several people say I had all the respect in the world for him until this. Um, but there's no denying that he's 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 a world renowned forensic pathologist. Um, he says they're uh, these are postmortem bites. I tell you what, I don't believe I don't believe they're Terry Hobbs bites. So you'd be happy about that. <laughs> you know, that the videos that people have put out there and, and try to convince convince yeah. us that that's that's Terry Hobbs bite marks. I don't believe that. Um, I, I'll, I'll tell you this, people that say, you know, animal, the idea of them being animal predation is, is debunked or it's stupid. I would tell you, go to that bayou today and throw a pig in that water and come back 18 hours later. And you tell me. So, and what I'm saying is I can't say conclusively from what I know right now, I'm not an expert. If those are bite marks from turtles, what I can absolutely conclusively tell you is that you cannot put a piece of meat of any kind in that water for 18 hours and not have hundreds of turtles all over it, chewing on it. 
and I've got about 60 hours of underwater GoPro video that'll prove that point. Oh, really? Okay. And, and have you announced this before? No, this is the first time I've mentioned that. Okay. Very good. I'd love to see that. I'd love to see that. Okay. Um, so, so, you know, that, that conversation has to be, we can debate whether this particular wound is or isn't, but someone's going to have to explain how the hell those boys were in that water and didn't get chewed on by turtles. Because it's, it's, it'll, it'll, it's creepy as hell. I, matter of fact, I've got your email. I'll, I'll give you a little sneak peek at some of the, the footage we have of, of the turtles, and it's unbelievable. You know, we threw, a, we threw a whole chicken, two of them actually, in the water. Because at one point we were trying to see if okay. they would attack downstream first. Whole chicken in the water and went back a few hours later to change the GoPro, and there was nothing left of the whole chicken but bones. Maybe it was Bojangles. Now, well, how do we know? How do we know? Uh, Bob, how do we know, though, that's the same amount of turtles in that water today than it was 20 years ago? How did, that's just uh, a flaw. Yeah, well, you have to look at you know, some of the evidence that's out there. The fact that it's okay. called turtle fill is a pretty good indicator. Uh, if you ever read um, Ryan Clark, uh, Christopher Byers, your older brother's affidavit, where no. he says that he used to play over there all the time and they used to go catch turtles and the area was full of turtles. And they would bring them back, and including big alligator snapper turtles, and put them in their pool. So that, that's a pretty good indication. That, and that was right, actually, at the crime scene on the other side of the pipe, where the boys' bodies were found. So I guess that's a pretty good indicator. Now, listen, I, I love this kind of stuff. And, and before, like you said, when you were talking about the the, uh, the, the work time card, man, I, you know, I, I I live for that kind of stuff, you know. Uh, so right. uh, I'm I'm interested in everything you're doing. And listen, if it turns out that these guys didn't do it, I'll be the first one to apologize. Okay, but I just can't imagine. Now, we got about uh, six or seven minutes left, uh, so we're starting to wind down. What do you want to sum things up? How do you want to sum things up for us? You, you know, to be honest, that's a tough question because I'm not in, uh, you know, you get into a, a conversation or debate and you have to you know, defend your position or make your, your, your positions clear. But I guess to sum things up, what I want to point out is that I haven't decided on anything yet. You know, my mind's not made up. You can't be a good investigator by boxing yourself in and having bias. So meaning my, my goal, my search is for new evidence. And we've already found some, we've got, we've got quite a bit of new witnesses and new information that's come out. Uh, and a lot of it, like I said, will probably blow your mind when it comes out, but still there's nothing conclusive that's happened yet. And, and I, I, I will be the first to tell you that if I find evidence that says that the West Memphis three committed this murder, I will, I will report it and stand by it. You know, the show is called truth and justice and that's all we're looking for. And this is my, my main goal is to shift the focus off of Damien, Jesse and Jason. Um, not because, you know, I, I'm not trying to you know, you know pick on them, but it's because they're not who this is about. It, it was always about them and it shouldn't. We're talking about the forgotten West Memphis three, Michael Moore, Christopher Byers and Stevie branch. And those boys deserve justice. And if that justice means that we prove that the three did it, so be it. But if it proves that someone else did it, then that's going to happen too. But uh, I'm convinced that when, when we gauge, engage hundreds of thousands of listeners from around the world in a real-time way and, and make all the evidence available to them, every single document, you know, my listeners are, I'm just a mouthpiece. My listeners are a lot smarter than I am, and they will constantly find things that I can't find. And that's why, why this works so well. So. You know, we're going to keep digging and we're going to we're going to try to find the truth. OK, and I want to have you back. I hope you'll come back. I hope I haven't offended you too much. OK, no, not at all. I, 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 I really enjoyed the discussion. No, I so have I. So have I. But a quick question. And I hate to hit you with this at the end. But now I was listening to some of your shows and the way you uh, the, like you'll present some kind of evidence. And you, you, it's very well produced. I love the way it's very great production qualities, great voice, all that kind of stuff. Excellent. I'm very and even the behind the scenes kind of stuff we were talking about before. Very professionally run. I like it. 
But uh, uh, when you insert like dramatic music after presenting some evidence, don't you think that's um? Uh, how do you justify that? What, what do you think that's um? Don't you think that's it's, you know? Uh, it, it, that you know, I don't do the music. Um, okay. A guy named Shane Yoder out of Nashville does the music for the show. Um, runs a uh, site called PutThemInTheSong.com, and and I love Shane. He is the best thing that's ever happened to our show, aside from my producer Mike. Um, but you know, the show has to be listenable. Yeah. We we try to control the tone with with the music, and a lot of times, the you know, what we, you may be perceived as dramatic, but what we're trying to do with the music is to you know, we we put breaks in between information to give the listeners a few seconds to absorb what we just said. And sometimes, you know, we're, we're trying to capture a feeling because, you know, we are, it's a, it's an interesting niche where we're, we're reporting real information in real time. And these are real people's lives at the same time. If the show isn't you know, something that people like listening to, then they're going to stop listening. And then we lose the army of supporters we have to try to figure these things out. So, um, you know, it, it's there to make the show uh, more listenable. And that, and that's, and that's what Shane does. And I think he does a, he does a great job in, um, you know, and sometimes we're trying to capture an emotion or we're trying to mm. y- y- let the listeners maybe kind of feel what we're feeling at that point. Okay. And now I'm a little bit more uh, dry. <laughs> you know what I mean? I just, well, I, and you're going live too, yeah, so it's not. As, no, I, t- I tape stuff too, but I don't, have those kind of, I don't have those kind of production qualities you have. And I'm a production team like that. How are you, real quick, because we've only got a couple of minutes. You know what? Let's put that question off to the next a time you come back, okay? Because I don't want to hit you with something heavy, you know, you can't answer in a short time. Tell us how people can find you, get a hold of you. They want to volunteer for you. What do they do? Uh, obviously, the show's on iTunes and Stitcher and everywhere else you get podcasts, Truth and Justice with Bob Ruff, um, and our website, truthandjusticepod.com. I'm very, I'm personally very active on Twitter, at truthjusticepod. Uh, and, you know, download the show, listen to it, start at 501 if you want. You know, the episodes, the hundreds are each season. So season five is West Memphis 3, the 500 series. Um, jump on our Facebook page. The fa- there's a fan page called the Truth and Justice Podcast Fans page. That's where there's a where most of the discussion happens. And just listen. And then, you know, there's we, we give out every week our email address. And uh, we actually have a, a voicemail tip line. There, you know, anybody with any information uh, they they can there are a million different ways they can get a hold of us and we try to be very responsive to listeners. It's supposed to be it's, it is a listener driven show. We're trying you know the the hashtag that people use. I didn't make it up. I think it's a little corny, but is the the truth and justice army that we're all you know working together to one to try to to try to actually make a difference in some people's lives. Well, why don't you give out the the number and the email? I have all my people make prank phone calls. Why don't you give out the number? Make them do a little bit more work than that. <laughs> oh, do you want to give out the number and the email? Sure. Our tip line is 269-224-2833. Uh, and that's just a voicemail line. So you're going to get it. You're not going to get us. You're going to get a voicemail. Um, but feel free to leave voicemails there. Uh, the email address is theories at truthandjusticepod.com. And you can also click the contact page on the website. So if you have information, uh, I'm sure with, with your listener base, Ed, I'm going to get some hate mail after no, this no, one. No, 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 uh, <laughs> no, no. No, really. Uh, I, I guarantee you, I get more hate mail uh, about my show than, than any of the guests. And you're going to get, a, trust me, you're going you're to like the response you get. I get a lot of polite people. No, good. That's really good. And, and, and like I said, I really appreciate you having me on. I've, I've enjoyed the discussion. No, me too. Very, very much. And I want to have you back. Uh, so we got uh, uh, Bob Ruff. And thank God I made it through the show because I wrote down Huff earlier today. And I, I, just, I put a big <laughs> time first to mess that up. I know, man. Right. Bob Ruff and truthandjusticepod.com. Check it out. Uh, Bob, thank you so much, man. All right. Keep in touch. Yep. Thank you. Take care. Good night. Okay, guys. Just one. Oh, we're out of time. All right. <laughs> All right, guys. Good night.
Okay, that was uh, Bob Ruff, truthandjusticepod.com. I like the guy, but it, I think he's uh, um, made up his mind, to be honest with you, okay? But not that uh, uh, we can't change it. Once again, okay, everybody who's been following my story here this week since I got towed in November, you know, uh, went out to California to, to help a client and solve a, a crisis, you know, uh, and I come back, they tow my car. Now my car's broken down. We got to get a new car. I got mold in the house here. So we've been in crisis mode here, uh, trying to get through this and trying to get your good shows and trying to book shows and book guests. Yeah, I, I think Bob Hoff Ruff, I just did it for the first time. It's Bob Ruff, R-U-F-F, not Hoff, okay? Um, but we're, we're doing this member section sale. 13 months for 60 bucks. You can't beat that, man. You can't beat that, okay? And you know what? I'm really hoping, too. I'm, by the way, I'm taping tonight with Pierce Redmond, and I'm really hoping that I'm not going to be this cold from now on because this is our first winter months uh, that I've been living here in this apartment. I, I hope this isn't going to be a problem going forward because i got to tell you, I'm freezing. And now i got a heavy shirt on. Uh, I made hot tea. i got the fireplace on. Uh, it's really, really rough. Uh, Barbara. Okay. So check out the member section. Also, too, advertising opportunity. As you may know, we're on KYAH in uh, AM Radio 540 in Utah. Covers a huge area in Utah. In fact, when you drive up the 15, you, you got to listen to it. If you're driving up from, from Las Vegas up to Salt Lake City, this is, you're going to pick up the station. So we have great advertising opportunities. So inexpensive, you would not believe the deal you can get by advertising on the Opperman Report. You get a banner on OppermanReport.com. You get a banner on AwakeRadio.us. I'm thinking of letting Bob uh, go on Awake Radio, too, and play shows or whatever he wants to. Also, too, uh, your, your ads are played between all the hosts on Awake Radio, 24-7, okay? Every, 12 times a day, seven days a week, your ad will be played there on Awake Radio. It goes up on YouTube. It goes up on iHeart, iTunes, Stitcher, all that stuff. So, please, if you have a product or an event or a book or a website that you want to promote, email me at oppermanreport at gmail.com, and I'll hook you up with some really, really, really good rates right now. And not just because I'm trying to get a car, uh, because we're going to get on a big station in California. So the next step out, okay, is to fund, to sponsor us, to get on this station out in California. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break even, okay, to get us out there, just so I can promote the member section and, and get us out here and start expanding the show. That's what we're looking to do right now. Okay, so check me out, uh, oppermanreport at gmail.com if you want to become a member, uh, oppermanreport.com if you want to check out the member section. Uh, thanks so much to Bob Ruff, truthandjusticepod.com. Tonight I'm uh, interviewing, I don't know, yeah, I'm interviewing Pierce Redmond this evening. Uh, this is Thursday morning as you hear this as I'm recording. Uh, so, And we're going to be taping a show. He has new information about the Jeffrey Epstein investigation uh, that involves um, uh, Roger Stone. And this guy, Rothstein, who was um, involved in that big Ponzi scheme down there in Florida, okay? This is all brand new stuff that Pierce has been working on all by himself. It's really good stuff. Uh, you, coming up this week, we have um, Jody Marie from Zero Waste. Uh, we're going to be talking to her. She's a vegan, and she's a... Uh, and this whole philosophy of zero waste, where you create no trash in your life, where you, where you consider everything, every plastic bag you pick up, every straw you pick up, that you don't create extra trash. I've been trying to do this 
And I plan on dedicating a year of my life to, to try to create zero waste in my life. Um, you know, compost everything, you know, all my trash. Only uh, use biodegradable uh, products. So we're working on, on that as well. And then what else is coming up? I got a show with them. Oh, Scott Schwartz was the best friend of Corey Haim. And uh, he calls out Corey Feldman on the show. We have that coming up as well. So thank you so much, guys. You can have your ad played here at oppermanreport.com every Friday night, 5 p.m. and Saturday night, 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And on Friday nights, too, we do a live portion for one hour that I just do a live monologue. The ads are very, very inexpensive, and they're also played in the Opperman Report member section. In the member section, you can find all kinds of exclusive content that you won't find anywhere else. It's as cheap as $6 a month, $20 a quarter, or $75 for a year. If you contact me directly at oppermanreport at gmail.com.